This episode of Sword and Laser is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com, use offer code SWORD. Sword and Laser podcast, episode number 171. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. How's it going, everybody? And this is a science fiction, fantasy, podcast, book club, video show, Google Hangout, among many other things. And uh, we have a very special episode today. I'm excited. Yeah, uh, this is... I, I'm glad you called it a very special episode, because I, I think that... Does that, that mean is someone's totally, going to die? That doesn't mean anyone dies... At least we don't think they do. You'll have to stay tuned to the very end to find out. Uh, but yeah, we're going to get a chance to uh, talk to Andy Weir and Daniel Suarez together at the same time because we met them on Saturday night at an event called SF in SF. Yes, they were uh, very nice and gave us the opportunity to interview the authors before the show. And uh, so we'll do our regular episode, a couple of quick burns, and we'll jump into the interview. And then after after we uh, do all our addendums at the end, um, stay tuned because we'll have uh, two readings done by the authors. Uh, they read parts of their brand new books, uh, The Martian by Andy Weir and Influx by Daniel Suarez. And then later they go into a Q&A um, after the fact with audience questions. So definitely make sure you stick around for that. Uh, if you want to hear more from the authors yeah it's kind of a bonus you get like double perspective you can you can have like an interview parallax comparing their answers to us <laughs> and what you get all of- the information basically and i apologize there was a little bit of line noise in the recording uh from the room um so mm. i tried to edit that out so you may hear a little bit of like wonkiness especially in the q a section uh, what so Veronica's wanted- trying to say is if you hear some kind of weird line noise Not in the room fault. It's in your head. Uh, we don't fault. know what you're talking. We don't know what you're talking about. Don't yell at me. I didn't do it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, let's hop right into what are we drinking, Tom? What are you drinking? I'm having a Smithix Premium Irish Ale. Uh, this is uh, this is not a craft beer, but it is a tasty beer, and I enjoy it. Fantastic. I'm drinking red wine. What brand of red I wine? I don't remember. It's a Pinot Noir. Really, you do. You, know, you went upstairs all that time to get the wine. It, it took her like twenty-five it. minutes. It has a heart on it. I I was playing with the dog. I was doing other things. I'm sorry. It's a red wine. I'll put it in the show notes if that makes you feel better. All right. Does that make you feel better? Look in the show notes, people, at <laughs> swordandlaser.com. All right. Well, let's uh, take a moment to thank uh, one of our sponsors before we jump into things. Of course, uh, Audible. Audible Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks, and they are a sponsor of our show. They have been for a very long time. And of course, I think we're going to recommend The Martian by Andy Weir, which is out on Audible. Hold your horses there, Veronica. People are like, recommend The Martian. What what do I have to pay? How much is this going to run me, Veronica? I want to read Andy Weir's book, but I hear these audio books are ridiculously expensive. They are not expensive if you sign up going to audiblepodcast.com slash sword. Uh, You can get a free audiobook download of your choice. Absolutely free. Wait, what? 
That's ridiculous. Yes, it is worth one credit so you can choose any book and it is a great way to kind of learn about audiobooks and dive right into that world and pick up something that maybe you wouldn't have tried otherwise. Yeah, it's like a 30-day free trial. So we're recommending Andy Weir's The Martian, partly because he's on the show uh, today. Uh, but it's also just a really good book. It's narrated by R.C. Bray. 10 hours and 53 minutes, man. And you it's also Whisper Sync. Get, it's Whisper Sync, too. See, because the Whisper Sync is cool if you read Kindle. So if you if you're like, well, I'm screwed. I already bought The Martian on Kindle. No, you're not. You can actually get the free audiobook credit at audiblepodcast.com slash sword and laser or slash sword. And then you can whisper sync it up. Yeah. So that wherever you were in the Kindle book, it'll sync to that on the audiobook like a freaking sorcery, even though this is science fiction. It's automagical. It is. Is that really trademarked? Is. I feel like that's trademarked by Apple. I don't I is it? It might be. Uh, anyway, free audiobook, free 30-day trial membership, so you get the member prices on anything else that you might find. Uh, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash short. Yes, Do and not now. to leave him out either, uh, Influx by Daniel Suarez is also on Audible. Not WhisperSync, but they do add WhisperSync to, to books that have been on Audible for a while, eventually sometimes. Um, yeah, so that, that, that might too. happen, but it's just it's a great audiobook too. That one is narrated by Jeff Gurner. Uh, He's so done all of Daniel's books, Kill Decision, Freedom TM, Demon. So that's awesome. So yeah, get a free audiobook download of your choice today, audiblepodcast.com slash sword. And thank you to Audible for their continued support of the sword and laser. All right. It is time ahead. now. Ooh. I was going to do the transition. I know I never do I that. I know. Did. You never do that transition. Oh, you're I freaking me out. I, I tried to steal your transition. Go ahead. But, go ahead. Do your but thing. But anyway, quick do burns. <laughs> that's it. Transition's over. That was a terrible hey, transition. You know what I'm excited about? Uh, Sci-Fi has given a direct-to-series order to The Expanse. That is the name of the series of James S.A. Corey books, like Caliban's War and... Uh, Leviathan Wakes. Yeah, yeah. The Leviathan Wakes, the first in the series, right? Mm -hmm. uh, first season comprising 10 episodes, and Sci-Fi is calling it Game of Thrones in Space. I feel like... It's that might be setting people up for a misimpression, uh, but it's going to be awesome no yeah, matter what. I'm, it doesn't really have that feel wait. to me. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you've, it's you're not the backstabby, like vast world of intrigue. It's more like a cast of characters who you learn to love and are unique and deep in their own way. And, and then I guess where it is sort of like uh, Game of Thrones in space is you do have this like interconnecting worlds of. Mars and Earth and the, and the asteroid, the Belters, uh, as well as the you know the outer planet alliance. So there's there's some some of that politi the politically maybe it is yeah. Um, one of the commenters over on io9 had an interesting point. Uh, D.L. Thurston said, it'll be interesting, as it would seem, to be more American horror story than Game of Thrones. Each book mm. is self-contained, though in the same universe, so it'd be one, two seasons per book, and then a reboot to a new story and characters, kind of like Once Upon a Time does. Um, Although, I don't know about American horror story, but there is definitely a through line in the expanse. Every, every book is self-contained, mm -hmm. uh, but there is, and I don't want to spoil it for people, but there is, I mean, obviously you have the, 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 the characters from the Rosinante and you have the Rosinante, which is the ship in each book and they're doing different things, but it is all kind of in the background. Everything that happens in Leviathan wakes is still evolving. It's still, right. and it's still affecting things. So it's, it's not exactly an entirely new story every time, but yeah. Still very uh, exciting. Big congrats to Ty Frank and uh, Danny Abraham because this is uh, super exciting stuff for them. And hopefully they can come on the show sometime and talk about it. That'd be great. 
Yeah, once the uh, once the show gets running, we'll try to have them on. Uh, Locus Awards. Yeah, Locus Award ballots are up. Uh, the Poland survey is available now. Um, you have to have, be a subscriber um, in order to uh, post your ballot. Um, and the categories are best SF novel, best fantasy novel, best YA book, first best first novel, best collection, et cetera, et cetera. Um, best anthology. Ooh, interesting. Maybe next I year, mean, Tom. Yes, maybe next year. Oh, right, because our anthology isn't coming out till May. So, hmm. Right. We'll but to, yeah, we'll you can to... you can head over there and vote for your favorites. I always feel bad voting like this because I I've I've never had the chance to read all the books. So mm-hmm. I always feel like I'm just picking like the one I have read, which doesn't seem very fair. Uh, right. but I guess that's that's the best you can do in this situation unless you have the time realize, to read 20 books. You realize Locus Publications is in Oakland? I did not. That's interesting. I do. I see that. Interesting. Next time I'm in town, we should go say hi. Yeah. Donuts or something. (laughs) Take them out for donuts. Uh, But yeah, speaking of the anthology, um, we are definitely going to be launching the Sword and Laser anthology to the public for purchase on May 1st. I was kind of hoping we'd do it a little bit earlier, but I guess that's a good good date to just go with. We can pick whatever date we want. As soon as the Kickstarter copies have mailed to international users that's the last wave uh, you may have seen on twitter domestic users people in the united states uh have been getting them but there's some custom stuff that needs to be worked out before it goes international so once that shipment goes out which we hope will be by the beginning of next week uh then we'll be able to make everything available to everybody and yeah may 1st is just kind of our target release date who knows maybe we'll get impatient once the international <laughs> orders go out and we'll do a early release just for our friends here on the podcast or something like that. Uh, but I'm really excited to get yeah. this out there. I got one thing to be- note. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. One thing to note is that when we do make it available for release at the very beginning on May 1st, it will only be available through lulu.com uh, at the beginning, but then it will become available on like Amazon and Barnes and Noble and those other places uh, kind of on their own schedule. We don't get to pick when, when it shows up there. So that'll, that might not happen exactly on May 1st, but uh, we'll keep you up to date. Okay. Uh, Pat Rothfuss saw a copy of it and he was very excited and he was asking when it was going to go live. So someone showed it to him at a, at a, at an event. Um, So I'm not sure who did that, but thank you for showing Pat the, the physical book. I think that's, that's, we didn't send him one. Not yet. I, sorry, Tom, we just got the book ready to go. I can't remember all the things. (laughs) We need to send him one. uh, He wrote such a nice intro. He did. All right. Let's do the calendar. Go for it. I'm not talking over you anymore. April 15th is today, and you can get The Severed Streets by Paul Cornell, Transhuman by Ben Bova, and Unwrapped Sky by Rurik Davidson. Yep. And then on April 22nd, we have The Forever Watch by David Ramirez, After Party by Daryl Gregory, Heaven's Queen Paradox by Rachel Bach. And then uh, in a couple weeks, April 29th, will be our next uh, book club episode of Sword and Laser. And you'll also be able to get Thorn Lost from the Glass Thorn series by Melanie Ron. Star Trek, the original series, Serpents in the Garden, which is apparently without an author, according to the way I did the calendar. But that author is actually Jeff Marriott. Uh, and Peacemaker by Mariana DePierre and Morningside Fall, part of the Dustwalker Cycle by Jay Posey. All right. Well, Tom, uh, let's thank one more sponsor before we jump into the interview. Uh, Let's thank Squarespace. 
Yes, uh, Squarespace.com is how we actually make this site, swordandlaser.com. Uh, this, the, this episode is brought to you by them. They're an all-in-one platform. Uh, they're fast and easy to create a professional site better than ours. Ours is good, but like you'd be stunned uh, with these new templates that they have, how great you can, you can make your website. And you can get a free trial and 10% off. So go to squarespace.com, use the offer code SWORD, and then explore. You can see all the customizable templates. They've got 20 of those. They've won numerous design awards. You'll see why. It's incredibly easy to use, but they do have help if you need it. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the support team is available. Uh, and their support team has even won awards. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience too. So your site looks right on whatever screen you're using. If you're using a phone, you're using a tablet, the site adapts to it, has all the same information. You may have noticed that with Sword and Laser. You're like, oh, they have a, they must have done a, a mobile version. No, we just did Squarespace. And then it just makes it all that. So start a trial, no credit card required. You just start building your website. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use that offer code SWORD to get 10% off and to show your support for Sword and Laser. And we thank Squarespace for their support uh, coming back on the show. It's good to have them back. Yay, Squarespace. Yay. All right, let's dive right into our interview with Andy Weir and Daniel Suarez at SFNSF. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. And we are here at SF in SF at the Emerald Tablet in San Francisco in the, um, where are we, North Beach? Oh, I thought you were going to ask about the room. I believe this is the cat room. <laughs> the, the lovely, lovely cat room. But more importantly, we are joined by authors Daniel Suarez and Andy Weir. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having me. Me too. You Thanks. did that thing where you introduce two people at once. And then they don't know which one to say yeah. hello to first. That was mean. I'm sorry. But you know there why? were two voices, so that's all that mattered. This is our first dual author interview. In, in person. In person. That's yeah. Right. So typically... We'd have you guys on a hangout, and then you could just interrupt each other to your heart's content. But now we have two microphones between the four of us, so that's how that works. Technology. Um, but, of course, you guys are doing a speaking here tonight or a reading. or What, what, what is planned for the event here tonight? Yeah, we're, we're sort of having a social hour, and then we're going to do readings, I imagine, and then Q&As on the books, and then more social hour. So mm -hmm. it's going to be very social. So, of course, uh, Daniel is here to promote his, the release of Influx. Yes, Influx. And Andy's here to promote the release of his first novel, right? The Martian? That's right, The Martian, my first book. So my we first actually... published book. I've, it's actually my third book. It's just the first one that doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> so how has the promotional tour been going? Uh, there hasn't been much of a tour. Uh, they haven't been sending me around. It's usually not useful to send an unknown writer around on a tour, because if you see somebody's name you've never heard of, oh, he's going to be in town soon. You don't care. But uh, but it's been neat to see all the promotional stuff going on, and, and doing events like these is pretty cool. And you've had a busy past couple of weeks, too, Daniel. Yeah, uh, although we don't tend to do uh, tours all around the country at bookstores. We'll do things like, you know, go to South by Southwest, being a sci-fi panel, uh, very targeted things. Because likewise, I, I, I remember one time, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the author, but he was a number two New York Times best-selling author who went to see a book, uh, him at a bookstore, and there were three people there. And this is a, like a really big guy. So mm -hmm. sometimes book tours can be, uh, you know, kind of, they don't pay off. So that I really try to focus on places where, I don't know, I think I can meet people who are readers in, in decent numbers and also fun events. And this sounds like a fun event. And, and, go ahead. Yeah, it does. And yeah, a book tour is, 
it's it's like the vast majority of sales now are just directly through Amazon and stuff like that. So even if you do go to a bookstore and um, there's a big crowd there to see you, you sell what a couple hundred books. Yeah. I mean, it's nice, but <laughs> or they already have your book and they brought it and that irritates the bookstore and it's like, oh, I already have your book because I, I got it on Amazon. Or something. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I've done that. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. So what do you think is the best way for an author, uh, you know, either someone who's very established or someone who's really just getting started to to promote their books and, and to kind of get out there and meet with people if maybe book tours aren't necessarily that, that way? Well, that's a good question. And that's the million dollar question that all aspiring authors want to know. And I don't know the answer. Um, the Martian kind of gained popularity on its own. I didn't do anything. And I don't know what I did right to make that happen. So I don't know if I can do it again. But uh but you know it was nice, <laughs> so I, I don't I don't really have an answer to that. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny you and I uh, both started out self published, or was is that true? Yeah. I, so I, I did it a few years back, and of course it's changed completely now. I'm like a dinosaur because I actually printed a physical book and, and got it places. But uh, the same thing here. I, I feel like somebody who luckily leaped through whirling fan blades to get to the other side, and people are like, "How did you do that?" I have no idea. I think if I waited ten minutes. It wouldn't have worked, you know. If it, ten minutes later, but um, you just do what you like, right? It, it, it's possible that you wrote a book that's good that people like. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that may, maybe that <laughs> you have to have you. both. I mean, no kidding aside, it has yeah, to be good, and people have to find it exactly. Yeah. But but also, I will say that I wrote that book in let's say 2004, then self published it in 2006, and it didn't get noticed for a year. So I was. Marketing, 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 and then I kind of gave up, and then it took off. It's like, so you're right. It's it's kind of hard to tell. Whereas I I I had sort of a weird story. I I the only reason I posted it on to Kindle was because um, people were sick of reading it on my website. I just had it in web pages on my on my site. I, it wasn't my intention to try to like be a professional author. And then people asked me to put it on Kindle so that they could just read it on their e-readers and. Well, there's an intermediate step. First, I um, I made an ebook version and posted that on my site, and then people didn't know how to download an ebook, or an EPUB, and put it on their Kindle, so they asked me to put it on Kindle, and then it sold well, for as as we were saying, reasons we don't understand, and then um, then then it started working its way up the the lists of the top sellers, and then it starts to snowball from there. I, I think that is a really interesting illustration of the fact that. When we talk about intellectual property in general on the internet, we talk as if, well, if it's free, it won't make any money. And what you found is, I wanted it to be free, and people were like, no, let me pay money, because you can't sell it for less than 99 cents on Kindle. That's right. I was I was forced to set the price at 99 cents. They won't let you set it any lower. They won't let you give it away for free, except for special prom- promotions that don't last very long and stuff. And um, more people bought it for, for Kindle than downloaded it for free. That's yeah. wow. That's really yeah. that's really shows you the it does make sense though if you think about it because there's a whole uh, well lubricated retail chain that that delivers it right to the device you want. Yeah, Amazon has a great reach into the readership market. I mean, well, that's and I what think it, what what you've done and whether this is what will work for everybody or not I'm not saying, but what you've done Andy is said what you're paying for is the delivery mechanism, right? Not not the actual thing, the not the object. Yeah, and to get it in your library there. By the way, apparently somebody's rolling a refrigerator down. <laughs> that's there. that's the publishing industry. They're very upset There's right like now. There's like the crashing of glass, yes. and it's like something out of a slapstick comedy. Right? <laughs> it's out, drama, and we can't see it. We're in a we're in a we're in a room with no windows, and so we just have no yeah. idea what that was, and no doors. <laughs> 
Yeah, where is Schrodinger's cat anyway? You uh, just gave me flashbacks to the haunted mansion at Disneyland. <laughs> You're in a room with no windows and no doors. Sorry, I was just at Disneyland. Oh, that's why I'm making these references. This show not sponsored. <laughs> not sponsored by Disneyland. No. Oh, oh. I I should point out actually when I was talking about self-published, that was my first book, Demon, right. not Influx. So that's, right. Yeah. Good point. Well, we have a ton of questions um, from our audience, actually, that we can jump into right now. Uh, the first one comes from Josh Lawrence, friend of the show. Uh, he says, for Daniel, uh, any changes in the tech world since writing Demon that greatly surprise or frighten you? Any changes that you specifically would have loved to incorporate into the novel? And I always, I've asked you this like 16 times. Yes. Am I supposed to say it Demon or Damon? Well, either one. It depends. You I keep saying say, that, but it I, can't I be true. Say, if, if, you, if you bought the book, you can say it however right. you like, because... This is the, you say potato, I say potato. You okay. get Unix people and they'll say Damon and other people will but, not. So. But really it's potato. Yeah. <laughs> really? You say this is it. <laughs> this is it. Little, little Indian, so big Indian. How do each of you say G-I-F? I say GIF. I also say GIF. What? Yeah, no, get out of here. We're GIFs people. rule. Yeah, that's, what that's what it comes down that's to. What it is. Yeah? is that what yeah, it is? Because I say GIF as well. Yeah, the older you are, the more likely you are to Wait. say GIF. My brain is exploding because I just learned that my best friend and co-host Tom Merritt says it wrong. See? In my mind. Not numbered in this room. Apparently. Sometimes it's best not to ask. <sighs> you don't want to know these answers. You don't want to know the answers. So, so this question was again? I'm sorry, Josh <laughs> I'm sorry. Lawrence. Um, he says, any changes in the tech world since writing Damon that greatly surprise or frighten you or any changes that you specifically would have loved to incorporate into the novel? Ah, Actually, what surprises me is how big parts of it are still very relevant. And I, I guess that's because I really tried to go down to the base, you know, TCP IP architecture of the Internet that's been around for a while. Uh, I tried not to use a lot of brand names, things like that, and fads. Uh, I knew cell phones and smartphones weren't going away anytime soon. So, no, I think I'm surprised at how it's held up. But if there is a technology that I could put in it that I did not, it would be more drones and robotics. Mm, I think that's something we talked a lot about uh, the last time we had you on the show, actually, yeah. was... was yeah, because yeah. I learned so much in doing Kill Decision about swarming intelligence and everything else that I, I think, oh, Sobel would love to do this now, but... Yeah. 2020 hindsight. All right. And then we had a question for Andy as well from Josh. He says, was the film Robinson Crusoe on Mars or the original Robinson Crusoe book itself an inspiration or influence on the Martian? Well, the original Robinson Crusoe, I'm sure that's the inspiration for all man versus nature stories, pretty much. I mean, but Robinson Crusoe on Mars, no, not so much. I mean, that's a fun little sci-fi romp. It's a 1950s. For those of you who don't know, it's a movie made in the late 1950s, early 1960s, somewhere around there. Guy goes to Mars with a monkey, literally, and, and, you know, he finds out, oh, it looks like I can take my helmet off because Mars apparently has a breathable atmosphere. You know, it's one of those. Yeah. And it's fine and it's fun, but no, certainly not, <laughs> not an inspiration for the Martian. If, if, if I had to say, you know, what were my, um, what were my inspirations? Apollo 13, uh, definitely. And, yeah, Robinson Crusoe slash Castaway, that sort of thing. Right, right. So, so we either need a monkey or a volleyball. So no, <laughs> he has neither of those things in, in the book. He, he doesn't have some sort of brand name device that he refers to as a friend. No spoilers, obviously. Uh, no, he doesn't have uh, any friends, imaginary or real. Someone's trying to get into the room without doors. <laughs> there, they yeah, can't. There, there was an attempt to enter the room that failed. And so we don't know what... It, there's all sorts It'll of stuff. Be back. We're in a Stephen King novel. Basically. Basically. Yeah. There's noise. All right. So our next uh, question comes from Jenny. Uh, the first one, we'll start with Andy this time. Uh, do you ever have nightmares? 
Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, um, it, it, it always relates to my anxiety level in real life, you know. So if uh, times are, you know, stressful for me, I'll start having nightmares that are fairly easy to analyze. <laughs> it's the, the, cat, cat. the cat is trying for all his life to break into the room right now. Hey, buddy. It really is the cat. It really is the cat. You're strong. He's. We hey. have been invaded by a cat. Probably. All right, well, there are five of us in the room now. Yep. The four of us plus Zeno, the cat. Until Zeno decides he very much wants to leave. Yes, I can only assume. Any moment now. So anyway, yeah, nightmares. Um, I get them. <laughs> I think we all do. Are, are there people who don't get nightmares ever? Because I envy Apparently, them. Apparently, maybe maybe Jenny, I, I, based uh, on maybe, her question. Maybe Jenny maybe doesn't. She just is very curious about I've this kind of thing. I always wanted to know what a nightmare was like. Do you have one? Yeah. Uh, and for Daniel, uh, what kind of everyday reading do you do to keep informed on experimental slash upcoming technology, or, or how do you keep up in general? Well, I have a, a standard rotation around the internet. It, you know, I look at things like MIT Technology Review, TechCrunch, basically pop URLs. I'll keep track of what's coming down the feeds, uh, but also I will get a lot of interesting emails from readers. Uh, that's how uh, I actually I got connected to a lot of technologies that way. Um, also, if I've seen it, I will also see it in my inbox later that day. So I'd say that it, it, that's the social media, friends, emails, and lots of reading in, in current you know, technology. Do you use an RSS reader? I used to. I actually used to have an RSS feed. And then I, I suppose pop URLs probably runs off of that. Oh, but, okay. uh, yeah, yeah. So that's really my proxy for, for doing it because it's all in one there. I don't have to set up uh, a bunch of feeds. Also, I kept changing machines and things, and it started to be a pain. Right. And I, I, you just reminded me that I stopped doing my RSS feed. I used to have like a technology feed yeah. of things I was interested in, but social media sort of replaced that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, before we get to the next question, I do want to point out, uh, and because I, I, I want to have this question answered by Andy as well, we haven't discussed, we kind of touched on it lightly, that The Martian is very heavily researched. Hold yeah. on while we let Zeno. Uh, Zeno. Well, Zeno just wants to look we and see. We can just see. leave the door open. Yeah, that's He's fine. a cat. That's what he wants. Uh, cartoon. Oh, sorry. Wants all the uh, you did a lot of research. You tried to make the Martian. Oh, yeah. Like, it, this could possibly happen. Yeah, everything in the story is technology that really exists. It's maybe better versions of technology that exist, but there's nothing completely made up in it. So how do you keep up on that sort of thing? Oh, um, same thing. Same general thing. Um, although I don't, I don't have a bunch of feeds that I aggressively check. There's a few websites I go to. I, I, I read, I read up at JPL's website pretty much every day. Um, I love the space program in general, and <laughs> we're we're all laughing at the cat as it's happening. And this is probably going to be cut out of the podcast. The various cat related uh, pauses are. Cats in her lap. Uh, you're probably going to get a picture. Uh, put the microphone. Put the microphone. There we go. We're getting a picture of Zeno. Live to tape, ladies. Yes. <laughs> oh, I guess. I guess I better open the apps with all the questions on it now. That's that's probably. I was so busy taking cat pictures that I that I lost track on everything. Um, uh, answering the earlier question, um, also like um, like he said, I get um, email from from friends and fans and whatnot about so if if there's any story or news snippet that has anything to do with mars i'll have an inbox full of of that link oh that's that's great actually <laughs> yeah well, it, it's, it, it could be great it probably is great but at some point it could be like when you mention you like frogs and then for years on holidays you get all the presents have frogs in them. It, it is it's easy enough to 
just delete an email that's a duplicate information. Oh, what what uh, <laughs> what I get kind of sick of is uh, I mean I don't I don't want to get too deep into trash talk here, but I'm I'm kind of sick of people sending me stuff about Mars One. Um, I really think it's a joke. And um, <laughs> I, I just I, it, it annoys me that people take it seriously. I would like to hear more about your feelings <laughs> on Mars One and your trash talking in, in this area. Well, they need they have something like three hundred thousand dollars worth of funding, which is not enough money to colonize Nebraska, let alone you know Mars. And so, I mean, it all comes down to funding if you actually want to have a Mars mission, and they they would need like literally a million times as much money as they have. I mean, or sorry, a th- yeah, like a million. <laughs> you need about three billion. With 100 people, they want to get 100 people to colonize? Is that- uh, yeah, the, the idea is that they want to, well, they want to colonize Mars by sending ships there, and then they wanted uh, a pool of volunteers, and they got a pool of volunteers, and, and this made a bunch of national news, and I'm like, yeah, this is just not ever going to and this happen. And this, this was privately funded. Yeah, that's yeah. the idea. And yeah. And to be clear, they, they have about $300,000 worth of funding, and their idea is somehow to get, like, reality TV money to Yeah, that fund doesn't it. seem like enough money. No, it's not. I mean, like, you take the, the Curiosity rover that's currently on Mars. That costs $3.5 billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Billion. And that's just one dollars. little Mars rover. Yeah. That's not a, not a ship full of people. Right. So, let's see. They have $300,000 now. Get to three billion, that'd be ten thousand times what they currently have, and that that was just to get one little rover. Well, it's a pretty big rover, but they want to have like a civilization there. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, I could talk about this all day, but I, I, I just <laughs> people need to stop taking it seriously. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, speaking of things that we should definitely take seriously, Tomahome wants to ask Daniel, uh, where is my flying car? Oh, well, yeah. yeah the, the, <laughs> I know, that's my fault. Uh, the BTC would have it, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, that's the, the antagonist in influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's, that would be my answer. I would say this, though. Uh, many times, you sort of sit back and think, you know, we were going to the moon back in the, in the 60s and 70s. It's like, why don't we have that? And we do have flying cars. It's just, it's not practical. And anytime I drive around a city like Los Angeles and you have a lot of people not using their turn signal, mm. you could imagine how much worse it would get if we all had flying cars. That is actually the thing so, that I come back to yeah. each time is that people are terrible drivers yes. on the ground. So give them a whole other dimension and it'll be even worse. On the flying o- robot cars. <laughs> we'll see. There. Flying that, self-driving. That's more workable. That's right, yeah. Self-flying cars. Self-flying, self-flying cars. cars. That's right. Yeah. They don't even need passengers. They just we've go. cracked it. Yeah. Well, I'll just stay at home and Skype, <laughs> and the self-flying cars will take things yes, to us, exactly. or carry the cats around. Uh, we also have a question. This one's from Ben mm-hmm. uh, for Andy. Uh, what What do you have next after the Martian? Do you have anything planned? Well, um, I've got a pitch into Random House right now, and we'll see if they uh, we'll see if they like it. We're going to talk about it next week, actually. And um, but I don't I don't want to talk about it too much because, you know, it may change and stuff like that. But it's going to be another hard science fiction story. And it, it's it it's not a series. You're not doing a sequel, The Vedushin or something. No, <laughs> no. Um, uh, that That's another thing that I still I, I need to talk about with uh, with the publisher. But uh, yeah, so short answer is I don't even have an answer to that yet. Sorry for the, sorry for the yeah, vague no, and non-answerish answer. There's but something coming. There is oh definitely no. I've I've quit my day job and I'm going full time on writing. Oh now, right so. on. 
And so for both of you then, uh, both being authors of, of hard sci-fi, I mean, would you consider yourselves hard sci-fi well, authors? I, I don't think I would, only because mm-hmm. I have uh, a deep respect for hard sci-fi. I tend to do high-tech thrillers, and they're high-tech very thrillers. technically okay. accurate. And this one's more of a sci-fi thriller, but I mean, if, if you read, I don't know, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Martian trilogy, stuff like that, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going in that much detail. Uh, that might be a little more high concept mm-hmm. in a way, so... But you still, it is very technical, a lot of the stuff that you're writing about. And so I'm curious, you know, I don't know how much other kinds of fiction you both have worked on or whether that be short stories or or other novels. Do you feel like when you go into the more technical kinds of fiction, what, how is that writing process different for you? I'll start with this and I'll pass it to you, Andy. Uh, I, I wrote the types of books I wanted to read. That was, it was that simple. I just, I read one too many tech thriller that basically pissed me off. I was like, oh, come on, you know, just try to learn a little. And and that's how Demon came about, was I, I just started toying around with it, because at the time, I was writing logistics software for a big company, and I started, for various reasons, uh, which I won't go into here, started pondering what you could do in modern society if you were dead. You know, why, why do you have to be alive to get stuff done, that type of thing. And I, I really tried to think that through in a realistic way. And it led in an interesting direction and wrote a book about that. But I've always just been interested in tech. That's, it boils down. It's that simple. I was convinced when I, I got my rejections for the manuscript when I tried to, to get an agent, and they said it was too technical. And I really felt that technology is mainstream now, that it's not some esoteric thing that people aren't interested in. We live and breathe it. And so I just kind of went with it, and it worked out. I'd be curious how you, how you feel about that, Andy. That's funny because I have a very similar feeling in that, like, um, first off, exactly as you say, I try to write the kinds of books that I would like to read. And then second off, I also get annoyed at, like, at inaccuracies, although in, in my case, it's all about, like, the space program, space travel, and, you know, stories that are like, oh, well, we'll just go to Mars. I'm like, getting to Mars is a really difficult <laughs> thing to do. And unless you're going to say you're way, way in the future where new stuff, anyway... So, yeah, I, but uh, you're, you asked how it's different than writing other kinds of stories, and I, I've, I've dabbled around. Uh, my previous books are um, definitely soft science fiction and stuff, and the biggest difference is all the research, because uh, no matter how much you know about the subject material, once you start writing a book about it, there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know that you need to go research. And, um, yeah, so I, I did a lot of uh, research for, for, my, for my book. I'm sure Daniel did as well. That's <laughs> It is. It is. I I really enjoy that. You know, I I set aside a certain amount of time per day to write so that I'm not a lazy bum that watches TV all day. And um and I say like, well, writing the research is part of my writing, and that that I just love. I could just do that all day. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna figure out how to do this. Figure out how to do that. Figure out. And then it's like, okay, now I actually have to put words into a word processor. And okay, no, yeah, that okay. was something because I. I tried, I tried to, I wrote a, a, a short story that was hard sci-fi and I found myself just kind of, I would get to the part where I have to talk about the technology and I'd just go, TK, 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 I'm going to fill that in later. Yeah. <laughs> then you go back and you know exactly what you have to research. There you go. Perfect. All right. Great advice. Uh, something just struck me and I'm sure it struck other people earlier if they were listening and, and maybe this is intentional. I don't know. Uh, BTC, often short for Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, not intentional, okay. actually. Uh, in, in, based on my inbox, an unfortunate coincidence, because, of course, people are reading significance into that. It's three letters, and there's a number of very disturbing things that have BTC as an acronym. So Bitcoin is one of them, um, and no, just a coincidence. All right. 
that's what BC, BTC wants you to think. That's what Satoshi told you to say. <laughs> that's, it's all part of the plan. Can you confirm right now that you are not Satoshi Nakamoto? <laughs> no, I can definitely confirm. So we haven't actually gone into uh, what the books are about, and I think that's something that maybe if, if listeners out there aren't familiar with your work, uh, just give us a quick you know, rundown of, of, of the latest story. Okay, well, The Martian is the story of an astronaut who gets stranded on Mars uh, due to um, a sandstorm uh, comes by during a manned mission where there were six crew members, and he gets hit by a, a piece of antenna, and the rest of his crew are convinced that he's dead because it ruined his biomonitor computer, and they can't physically see him, but they did see that his suit lost pressure. Anyway, they had to evacuate, and then uh, when he wakes up again, he has survived, and the crew is gone, and the communication array is is offline, and he has to survive. And so it's all about him trying to stay alive just with the equipment that was there for the one-month Mars mission. Okay, and Influx is about a very gifted young physicist who creates a technology that is a gravity mirror. It can reflect uh, gravity. And rather than win the Nobel Prize, he's grabbed by this BTC organization, which is a shadowy organization that tries to contain radical new innovations that they feel might disrupt society. And they have, of course, been doing this for several decades, so they have the benefit of other massive innovations like fusion and artificial intelligence to help them do their job. So they are, in effect, living in our future, and so they are uh, keeping the future from us. All right. Um, d- no, I didn't have a follow-up. You, you stunned me. <laughs> and and we, we've covered all of the, uh, yeah. the questions? Yeah. Does the cat have a follow-up? <laughs> yes, yes. He is right at home. I wish I could be that relaxed, man. Yeah. That cat is just really comfortable. He's just looking real happy. He's on her lap. He's reaching out and grabbing his... So, well, I was going to say, the one thing that... Uh, and we already asked you this question, Andy, but uh, do you have anything in the works already for a next project? Oh, you might appreciate this, because okay. I get this every time. And, and the reality today is, if I'm writing a 140,000-word novel... This is a question I can't answer, really. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I, I very, you know, I'd say that, yes, obviously I'm working on I'm always working on another book. But the truth is, if I tell anybody really even the high concept of what I'm working on and they love it, there's going to be 10 copies of it out as a novella oh, in two weeks on, on Amazon. So I always do my song and dance and say, oh, yeah, I'm working on lots of things. But that's really the reason I don't. So we're both just dancing around that question. Okay, that's I hope you're totally good with that. fair. Totally you're fair. You're going to get the question we're many times. We're always hoping some author's going to go, no. <laughs> just coasting. That's right. No, I'm done. It was a, it was a, it was a phase. I'm going That's to right. Disneyland. That's right. <laughs> so, what Start are you guys going fun. to be? What are you going to share tonight uh, here at the performance? Should I start? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, well, uh, again, I'm going to do a reading, and that's tricky with a thriller. If you're going to do a reading, you don't want to give away any. Read the last three pages. That's before. right. <laughs> <laughs> People be really upset, I think. They uh, save everybody a lot of time. No, uh, but I tend to make very clockwork-like thrillers where all the pieces fit in. So if you feel, but I did find uh, part of a chapter that I can read that will give it a taste of what the book's about <laughs> without giving the the whole show away and and, and having major spoilers. Uh, but that I always look forward to the Q and A's as well. Uh, I find, especially when you write fairly technical material, you get. Ter- fairly technical readers, and then it's great. You meet all sorts of interesting people who have neat perspective on things that you might not even have heard of before, and so that's why I love events like this. Great. 
Um, for me, it's pretty straightforward. I'll just be reading the first chapter, which is short enough that it's um, that it can be contained in a reading. I'll be skipping over a, a section of it and just explaining something quickly. Um, and you know, I kind of hate doing readings. Um, you, you'll you'll see from my halting, clumsy reading style when I'm up there. But uh, I'll just get through that, and I'll probably read it too fast. I'm always trying to. I I always have to slow myself down just because I'm like, the faster I read this, the faster I'll be done. But uh, but yeah, like like Daniel, I love the um, I love the Q and A that 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 I, I I actually enjoy because like he said, you you get questions things you hadn't even thought of. Sometimes I get question deeply deeply technical questions about because they're like oh so you can be technically accurate oh let's see how I, <laughs> but I, I, I like those JPL. we we call those well actuallys yeah, yeah. Well, actually nice I like it yeah. Do you have any tips on the readings since you've done a few of these? Well, I was laughing because I tend to agree. I, I have not done many readings because I always resist them. Uh, and in this case, and, and there was a, a saying, can't remember the author's name, but I always love this quote, that I am the empty husk that follows my work around, in, in a way, is what he was saying. So the other thing is you don't become a novelist typically because you love to to act in public and act like several characters. So uh, readings always seem kind of suspect to me. But <laughs> but there's been occasions when I've gone to a reading that's been really great. Uh, I cannot guarantee that tonight will be one of them. But, uh, yeah, so I, I felt the same way pretty much. All right. Uh, we have uh, on our video author spotlight uh, some some super questions. I just want to ask each super of you questions. one of these. Super questions. Uh, we have one super question for you tonight, which is if you could ban any word from the English language, uh, what would that be? Just a word that you're – or maybe even just put it on a like indefinite hiatus. Something that you're like, I'm tired of that one. I don't, I, I don't want to see it anymore. I don't want to write it anymore. You know you're going to think of the one you hate like five minutes later. Yeah, I, I, nothing I comes try, immediately to I mind. I tried to extend that question as long as possible to give you a chance to... Yeah, you, yeah, did. you, did. <laughs> you did, but um, was it, it wasn't you enough. Just, you guys love all words. I'm going to hand the microphone over to Daniel now because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put in a, a provisional. Uh, Good, one, yeah, that works. Which is, uh, is it twerk? Is that the yeah yeah I don't need to hear any more about okay. that I really don't uh, but there's a, there's going to be a mannerism that people are injecting into like every sentence that I'll think of like I say five minutes after this interview's over you can email us we'll put it in the show notes boy I don't know I mean I, it's it, it's it's tempting to go for things that are like you know pop pop culture words that you're sick of but you know thinking rationally like a scientist that word's going to go away on its own pretty soon on video yeah is it yeah yeah <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, uh, boy, I I, I kind of get sick of the word um, exploit when used to describe people's treatment of people, as opposed to exploiting minerals or something like that. Um, I kind of feel like that's a really charged word that people... It's like, if somebody says, oh, group A is exploiting group B, and I'm like, well, you're part of group C. And so if, if group A and group B are all fine with this transaction, then why are you judging them? And so I know it's a weird off-the-wall thing to pick, but I, I think I'd go for exploit when used to describe humans interacting. Good answer. Yeah. I don't all know right. if it's a good answer. Uh, <laughs> one last wrap-up question, okay. uh, because especially because you both have taken the path of starting by doing your work yourself and then getting the publishing later. Uh, what kind of advice do you have for people who are out there doing the same thing, like you know, 
taking a crack at this and saying like I I want to write I want to do this I want to follow in your footsteps uh, I get asked that a lot and I can't give any sort of formula for how you end up in our situation because like as as we were saying earlier we don't know <laughs> I, or I, I I can't speak for Daniel I I have no idea what I did right um, I didn't do any attempt to market the book and I don't know I, I don't know why it was as popular as it is so the only advice I can give is go back a few steps and say you need to write you need to actually write an idea in your head is not a book it's not a book until you write it and I would advise any aspiring author to I know it's hard don't tell your friends about your story ideas don't do it make a rule for yourself that the only way they can find out about your story is to read it that'll inspire you to write it because if you tell your friends about it you tell all your friends about it you get the kind of like entertainment feedback that you crave and then you're not motivated to write hmm. anyway that's the only advice i had i think that's that is dead on especially because also it tends to uh i don't know take some of the uh velocity away from it you get you get that joy when you're talking to your friends and then you don't actually sit down and write it uh the other Thing that I would say, for me at least, uh, the big takeaway was don't try to find a publisher. Try to find an audience, and you can do that now because I know that that's actually how I wound up getting a deal later. Now, I don't, again, I don't know exactly why my book in particular was picked uh, by people uh, to purchase it, self-publish or otherwise, but it was the fact that I had an audience and I was selling books with some velocity at the time that got me my, my two-book deal. And then it just goes from there. So that's that would be my advice. Fantastic. Well, Daniel and Andy, thank you so much for, for sitting down and having a little chat with us before your performance. Thanks for having me. Performance? What? No, yes. It's you're very reading. Good. <laughs> you're, very good to sit here. <laughs> your spoken word performance art that you'll be doing later. <laughs> the cat. Dear yes. God. And of course, uh, podcast listeners out there, stick around because we will be having their readings as well as a Q&A uh, after that. So stay tuned. Well, that was fantastic. Those guys are great. Um, I, I can't wait to read The Martian. Of course, we have a review of The Martian up on the website right now um, if you're curious to learn more about it, uh, which, is, which is great. Let's see. Actually, we've got, a, we've got a Daniel Abraham review up there from Emily Carlson. We've got uh, The Martian, which was written by Dara Heaps. Uh, we've got a lot of user-submitted reviews. So if you head to our featured reviews section over on swordandlaser.com, uh, you can read a bunch of them over there. It's a lot of fun. Or send us one in at reviews at swordandlaser.com. We always are looking for stuff that you guys are interested in reading and wanting to talk about. Yeah, thanks to you guys uh, who have sent in the reviews. It's really great to get those. All right. Well, that is our show. Um, if you are watching live, of course, the full interview will be up on the podcast and you can get all of the uh, the interviews there. Um, and if you want to learn about more podcasts, head over to uh, boingboing.net slash category slash podcast. There's a ton of great stuff over there. Um, lots more podcasts for you to fill your ears with. If you want to get in touch with us, the email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. The website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com. And the phone number is 415 7736 or 415-7-SWORD-6. Stay tuned for our SFNSF panel with Andy Weir and Daniel Suarez as well as a Q&A after the fact. Thank you guys so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye.
podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Are we off and running? You're good. We are off and running. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rena Weissman. I'm the coordinator of SF and SF. And this thing is very handy to hold on to. I don't have to stand in front of you and, you know, do my, my little dance and everything. Um, welcome back to SF and SF. We are relaunching our author event series with uh, Andy Weir and Daniel Suarez tonight. Uh, I'm very delighted to see such a great group here tonight. I really thank you all. Uh, I want to impress upon everyone how worthwhile it is to make the trek out here to North Beach to this fabulous, fabulous community space, uh, the Emerald Tablet. Um, it's There's lots of ways to get here by bus, by car, by walking, although I do not suggest going up and over Vallejo because that is you're pra- practically perpendicular. It's quite a steep hill, as I found out last night. So, But there's lots of ways to get here. We hope you'll find your way here every month. Um, what I would like to first of all do is to thank Della and Lapo, the proprietors of the Emerald Tablet, for hosting us tonight. <laughs> and I'd also like to give a shout out to our newly acquired mascot, the resident cat of Emerald Tablet, Zeno, who will find his way into everyone's laps by the end of the evening, I'm sure. Um, again, a thank you to Borderlands Books for being our bookseller, uh, to Cheryl Morgan for being our webmistress, and to Tachyon Publications, uh, here in the person of Jacob Weissman tonight, for being our overall sponsor and supporter for SF and SF. Um, we are coming up on, I think this is our ninth year. Uh, we're very excited about that. Um, we've got a whole bunch of things planned for the rest of the year here at our, our new home. Um, we did have a film last month, and we will have a film next month, but we do not have a film this month. Part of that is because a lot of our energies are going into planning and working on the committee for an upcoming event in San Jose called the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America Nebula Awards Weekend. And this is an event that is open to the public. Uh, you can buy your memberships online at sfwa.org. And we, there'll be panels, there's programming, there's tours, there's a couple hundred of your favorite writers going to be there. It's going to be very exciting. And SF and SF is delighted that our May event will actually be held there. Um, and this, again, is an event open to the public. It will be held at the San Jose Marriott uh, Thursday. Thursday, May 15th, and we are delighted to be hosting authors Samuel R. Delaney and Daryl Gregory there that night. And this is, it's huge. I'm so excited. <laughs> we'll have Borderlands there selling books. We'll have a bar. It'll be just like old times, except in San Jose. <laughs> um, and again, it's open to the public. You can buy your memberships for the weekend. You can come down for a day. Um, I will say as a corollary, there's also Big Wow Comic Book Convention happening there at the same site, uh, the convention center. So there's a lot to do there in San Jose that weekend. And then in June, we'll be back here at the Emerald Tablet with an author event and a movie event. And the way you can find out about those is by signing up for our newsletter, which uh, you can either do at our website, which is sfnsf.org. You can put your name on our mailing list up at the front next door to putting your name on the Emerald Tablet's mailing list because they do a whole slew of things here, music, drama, performance, dance, you name it, apart from serving as a wonderful, wonderful community art gallery with some beautiful stuff here today. So... We're just very excited to be here, and I'm very glad you're all here as well. So thank you again, and uh, I'd like to go ahead and introduce author Terry Bisson as our moderator for the evening. Thank you.
All right, thank you. Um, <clears throat> remind everybody to t- turn off their cell phones because anybody that is trying to reach you is already here. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> um, I'm glad everybody's back. We've been on a hiatus, and as Rena, I won't go over what Rena said, but uh, we think we're important. Uh, science fiction and fantasy are many things. They're movies, they're games, they're, uh, you know, now they're TV shows. We're about the literature. What we do here is uh, present the authors, and the authors present their work by reading their work. We also talk about the work, and we piss and moan about publishing, and we talk about science fiction in general, but primarily what we do is uh, present an author who uh, has written something that deserves to be read and deserves to be listened to. So, to begin, we have two very interesting authors tonight who are, in a way, very much alike and somewhat different as well. But we'll talk about that after the after they both read. We'll take a break, and then we will have a Q&A discussion with the authors. Um, one of the... One of the most memorable elements in literature, at least to me, is is um, opening lines. And I think we all remember certain opening lines like, call me Ishmael, or the sky was the color uh, of a TV turned tuned to a dead channel, or I'm pretty much fucked. And um, the last line, which is, I think, going to enter the canon of memorable lines in science fiction, comes from a debut author who is in, enjoying enormous success with his first novel. It's not his first work of art because he's been around in terms of comics and blogs and other stuff, but his first novel has enjoyed uh, quite a bit of success and notoriety. But we'll talk about that's publishing. We'll talk about that later. And um, to get a taste of this novel, which I could say in a line what it's about, because it's high-concept SF and hard SF, but I'll let him explain that to you. And let's please welcome Andy Weir. Hello, I'm Andy Weir, and I wrote The Martian, available back there for sale. Um, I'm going to read just right from the very beginning, and I uh, hope you guys don't mind profanity, because there's a fair amount of it in the book. Yeah. (laughs) Hope you guys don't mind some fucking profanity. Um, uh, What I was going for in this book is um, scientific accuracy. Everything shown in this book um, throughout the entire thing, and the the plot of the book will become relevant from the reading, but... um, Everything that's in it is scientifically accurate, um, uh, to the best of my ability. I did a lot of research for that. And uh, some of the things are, how do I put it, like better versions of what we currently have, but not um, not overwhelmingly so. So I'm just going to start right from the very first page. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read chapter one, which is fairly short. It shouldn't take that long. It should take less than ten minutes. And I'm going to skip over a section just because it's more exposition-y and less, less interesting for a reading. Um, so I'm just going to explain to you that there is a spacecraft. They, this takes place on Mars, on the surface of Mars, during a manned mission. 
And there is a spacecraft on, on the surface called the MAV, which stands for Mars Ascent Vehicle. And that's the ship that the astronauts will take from the surface of Mars back to their main ship, which is in orbit, which will in turn take them home to Earth. So just everybody know, needs to know that that's what the MAV is, Mars Ascent Vehicle. All right. Log entry, Sol 6. I'm pretty much fucked. That's my considered opinion. Fucked. Six days into what should have been the greatest two months of my life, and it's turned into a nightmare. I don't even know who will read this. I guess someone will find it eventually, maybe a hundred years from now. For the record, I didn't die on Sol 6. Certainly the rest of the crew thought I did, and I can't blame them. Maybe there will be a day of national mourning for me, and my Wikipedia page will say Mark Watney is the only human being to have died on Mars. And it'll be right, probably, because I'll surely die here, just not on Sol 6 when everyone thinks I did. Let's see, where do I begin? The Ares program. Mankind reaching out to Mars to send people to another planet for the very first time and expand the, hor expand the horizons of humanity, blah, blah, blah. The Ares 1 crew did their thing and came back heroes. They got the parades and the fame and the love of the world. Ares 2 did the same thing in a different location on Mars. They got a firm handshake and a hot cup of coffee when they got home. Ares 3? Well, that's my mission. Okay, not mine per se. Commander Lewis was in charge. I was just one of her crew. Actually, I was the very lowest ranked member of the crew. I would only be in command of the mission if I were the only remaining person. Hey, what do you know? I'm in command. <laughs> I wonder if this log will be recovered before the rest of the crew dies of old age. I presume they got back to Earth all right. Guys, if you're reading this, it wasn't your fault. You did what you had to do. In your position, I would have done the same thing. I don't blame you, and I'm glad you survived. It was a ridiculous sequence of events that led to me almost dying, and an even more ridiculous sequence that led to me surviving. The mission's designed to handle sandstorm gusts of up to 150 kilometers per hour, so Houston got understandably nervous when we got whacked with 175 kilometer per hour winds. We all got in our flight spacesuits and huddled in the middle of the HAB just in case it lost pressure, but the HAB wasn't the problem. The MAV is a spaceship. It has a lot of delicate parts. It can put up with storms to a certain extent, but it can't just get sandblasted forever. After an hour and a half of sustained wind, NASA gave the order to abort. Nobody wanted to stop a month-long mission after only six days, but if the MAV took any more punishment, we'd all have gotten stranded down there. We had to go out into the storm to get from the HAB to the MAV. This was going to be risky, but what choice did we have? Everyone made it but me. Our main communications dish, which relayed signals from the HAB to Hermes, acted like a parachute getting toward from its foundation and carried along with the torrent. Along the way, it crashed through the reception antenna array. Then one of those long, thin antennae slammed into me and first. It tore through my suit like a bullet through butter, and I felt the worst pain of my life as it ripped open my side. I vaguely, I vaguely remember having the wind knocked out of me, pulled out of me, really, and my ears popping painfully as the pressure of my suit escaped. The last thing I remember was seeing Johansson hopelessly reaching out toward me. I awoke to the oxygen alarm in my suit a steady, obnoxious beeping that eventually roused me from a deep and, profound deep and profound desire to just fucking die. The storm had abated. I was face down and almost totally buried in sand. As I groggily came to, I wondered why I wasn't more dead. <laughs> the antenna had force enough to punch through the suit and my side, but it had been stopped by my pelvis, so there was only one hole in the suit, and a hole in me, of course. I had been knocked back quite a ways and rolled down a steep hill. Somehow I landed face down which forced the antenna to a strongly oblique angle that put a lot of torque on the hole in the suit. It made a weak seal. Then the copious blood from my wound trickled down toward the hole. As the blood reached the site of the breach, the water in it quickly evaporated from the airflow and low pressure, leaving a gunky residue behind. 
More blood came in behind it and was also reduced to gunk. Eventually, it sealed the gaps around the hole and reduced the leak to something the suit could counteract. The suit did its job admirably. Sensing the drop in pressure, it constantly flooded itself with air from my nitrogen tank to equalize. Once the leak became manageable, it only had to trickle in new air to relieve the air lost. After a while, the CO2, carbon dioxide, absorbers in the suit were expended. That's really the limiting factor to life support. Not the amount of oxygen you bring with you, but the amount of CO2 you can remove. In the HAB, I have the oxygenator, a large piece of equipment that breaks apart CO2 to give the oxygen back. But the spacesuits have to be portable, so they use a simple chemical absorption process with expendable filters. I'd been asleep long enough that my filters were now useless. The suit saw this problem and moved into an emergency mode the engineers called bloodletting. Having no way to separate out the CO2, the suit deliberately vented air to the Martian atmosphere, then backfilled with nitrogen. Between the breach and the bloodletting, it quickly ran out of nitrogen, and it was left with my oxygen tank. So it did the only thing they could to keep me alive. It started backfilling with pure oxygen. I now risk dying from oxygen toxicity, as the excessively high amount of oxygen threatened to burn up my nervous system, lungs, and eyes. An ironic death for someone with a leaky spacesuit, too much oxygen. Every step of the way would have had beeping alarms, alerts, and warnings, but it was the high oxygen warning that woke me. The sheer volume of training for a space mission is astounding. I'd spent a week back on Earth practicing emergency spacesuit drills. I knew what to do. Carefully reaching to the side of my helmet, I got the breach kit. It's nothing more than a funnel with a valve at the small end and an unbelievably sticky resin on the wide end. The idea is that you have the valve open and stick the wide end over a hole. The air can escape through the valve so it doesn't interfere with the resin making a good seal. Then you close the valve and you've sealed the breach. The tricky part was getting the antenna out of the way. I pulled it out as fast as I could, wincing as a sudden pressure drop dizzied me and made the wound in my side scream in agony. I got the breach kit over the hole and sealed it. It held. The suit backfilled the missing air with yet more oxygen. Checking my arm readouts, I saw the suit was now at 85% oxygen. For reference, Earth's atmosphere is about 21%. I'd be okay so long as I didn't spend too much time like that. I stumbled up the hill back toward the HAB. As I crested the rise, I saw something that made me very happy and something that made me very sad. The HAB was intact. Yay! And the MAV was gone. Boo. <laughs> right that moment, I knew I was screwed. But I didn't want to just die out on the surface. I limped back to the hab and fumbled my way into an airlock. As soon as it equalized, I threw off my helmet. Once inside the hab, I doffed my suit and got my first good look at the injury. It would need stitches. Fortunately, all of us had been trained in basic medical procedures, and the hab had excellent medical supplies. A quick shot of local anesthetic, irrigate the wound, nine stitches, and I was done. I'd be taking antibiotics for a couple of weeks, but other than that, I'd be fine. I knew it was hopeless, but I tried firing up the communications array. No signal, of course. The primary satellite dish had broken off, remember? And it took the reception antennae with it. The HAB had secondary and tertiary communication systems, but they were all both just for talking to the MAV, which would use its much more powerful systems to relay to Hermes. Thing is, that only works if the MAV is still around. I had no way to talk to Hermes. In time, I could locate the dish on the surface, but it would take weeks for me to rig up any repairs, and that would be too late. In an abort, Hermes would leave orbit within 24 hours. The orbital dynamics made the trip safer and shorter the earlier you left, so why wait? Checking out my suit, I saw the antenna had plowed through my biomonitor computer. When on an EVA, all the crew's suits are networked so we can see each other's status. The rest of the crew would have seen the pressure in my suit drop to nearly zero, followed immediately by my biosigns going flat. Add to that, watching me tumble down a hill with a spear through me in the middle of a sandstorm, yeah, they thought I was dead. How could they not? They may have even had a brief discussion about recovering my body, but regulations are clear. 
In the event a crewman dies on Mars, he stays on Mars. Leaving his body behind reduces weight for the MAV on the trip back. That means more disposable fuel and a larger margin of error for the return thrust. No point in giving that up for sentimentality. So that's the situation. I'm stranded on Mars. I have no way to communicate with Hermes or Earth. Everyone thinks I'm dead. I'm in a hab designed to last 31 days. If the oxygenator breaks down, I'll suffocate. If the water reclaimer breaks down, I'll die of thirst. If the hab breaches, I'll just kind of explode. If none of those things happen, I'll eventually run out of food and starve to death. So yeah, I'm fucked. (laughs) So Terry, what's the plan? Do we do our readings and then a common QA, or how do you... What's, oh, well, I'm done. Okay. Well, are you going to introduce Daniel? Okay. <laughs> Mighty nice. Um, our next author is um, not a debut author. He's also a, he writes what he calls sci-fi thrillers or techno thrillers. He's been a New York Times bestseller. He has three or four, uh, one, uh, two book series and a new novel and a new novel on, on the way, all what I would call hard SF, which, um, I think is, is something that science fiction, um, needs and welcomes these days. I think the reception he's gotten from, uh, from readers in and out of the field is proof of that. Um, I don't know what else I would say about this author except uh his success is I would say more um it's it's equally grand not quite as sudden uh but equally well deserved and um I think the rest of it we'll discuss when he he's going to introduce his new novel the theme of the novel and read some from it so we'll talk about the aspects of it in our discussion after the reading um, please join me in welcoming Daniel Suarez. Oh my God, I scared the cat. Not a good start. Uh, this author, in one word, trouble. That's this one. Um, well, I'm. i It's always tricky to try to read a section of a. Yes, I am. No, especially on this podium. Uh, it's always tricky to read. Uh, do a reading from a thriller, because of course you, you plot them very intricately. So I'm going to try not to reveal anything, uh, anything that will ruin the book, but. Influx. Influx is uh, uh, a sci-fi thriller for those who are familiar with my books. I do tend to do uh, high-tech thrillers, and there is a subtle, subtle difference. Maybe it, maybe it's my reference, reverence for hard sci-fi, because I read so much of it when I was young that I don't, pretend to be doing that, but lots of people tell me I'm a sci-fi author, so I guess I am. <laughs> uh, so I, I decided in this book, after doing a very near-term fiction, you know, high-tech fiction, where you could conceivably see it happening right now, uh, in particular my first book, Demon, uh, I, I knew I was onto something with that book when the Pentagon got in touch with me, and they said, hey, why don't you talk to us about this? So that was very near-term. Uh, and in this particular book, I wanted to do something different, actually. Um, in, in, in particular, what I was trying to look at in Influx, and I'll just encapsulate the, the plot real quick. It is the story of a young physicist who conceives of a, a gravity mirror, a way to reflect gravity. 
And rather than get the Nobel Prize, he's grabbed by a shadowy organization that doesn't like disruptive technologies, technologies that can tear apart the social fabric. That's their concern. So he instead joins other people who've done things like invent fusion. So it's a very high-concept story. And I wrote this more as a metaphorical story. So I think a lot of people uh, looked at it like, hey, do you really think there's a, an organization in the government? No. No, I don't. <laughs> it's called parsing a metaphor. No. It, it, so I'm going to do a reading, actually. Let's see here. I'll set this up. And of course, I've lost my place. What's happened here is uh, uh, the protagonist has just died, essentially. He believes he has just been killed by a group of people who are very angry about his work. And instead of uh, waking up uh, in the void or dead, he instead wakes up here. This is uh, Chapter 3, Postmortem. John Grady became aware that he was sitting in a stylish modern office lobby, high atop an unfamiliar city skyline. The view out the window was spectacular. Modern skyscrapers stretched along a coastal plain. It was a beautiful day. What the hell? Grady turned to see that he was sitting in a row of empty modernist chairs in some sort of waiting room. He was wearing his only suit, loafers, and his lucky tie, which had a fabric print of helium atoms. He'd caught his reflection in a mirrored wall opposite. It was the same outfit he'd been wearing three years earlier when he'd been interviewed for a research grant. In other words, the last time he'd worn a suit. Libby, had, uh, Libby, his fiancée, had helped him pick it out, helped him look normal. His hair, too, was cut short, and he was clean-shaven. Grady searched his pockets and found only a note on which Libby's clean script spelled out, Good luck, in blue ink. What the hell? A handsome young man sitting behind a nearby built-in reception desk nodded to him. Mr. Hedrick will see you now, Mr. Grady. Grady turned uncertainly. Social convention required that he get up now. Instead, he held up a pausing figure, finger. Uh, hang on a second. Can I get you some water or coffee, Mr. Grady? Grady took a calming breath. No, thanks. It's just that uh, he considered the possible scientific explanations. He had no idea how he'd gotten here. Just moments ago, he'd been strapped to a bomb. Was this a hallucination? A last hurrah from the dying neurons in his brain? Time was relative, after all. This might all be happening in the instant he experienced biological death. He looked around. It seemed pretty convincing. Are you all right, Mr. Grady? He wasn't exactly certain. I think I might be dying, actually. Excuse me? Grady took another deep breath. Who am I here to see? Mr. Hedrick, sir. I'll buzz you in. The assistant tapped some unseen button, and a nearby set of double doors opened, revealing a huge and opulent office suite beyond. Go right in, the young man smiled pleasantly. I'll have some water brought to you. Grady nodded as he rose to his feet. Okay, thanks. With another deep breath, he wandered over to the doorway and entered the most lavish office he'd ever seen. The multi-story bank of windows on the far wall had a breathtaking view, through which he could see clearly the Sears Tower, or Willis Tower, or whatever the hell they called it nowadays. Chicago. He was in Chicago. He remembered that he'd met with a grant committee in Chicago years before, but not in a place like this. The office he stood in could easily have served as a small aircraft hangar, with several closed doors leading out of it to either side, 30-foot ceilings and modern burled wood walls, one of which had a large round seal engraved into it, depicting a silhouette of a human head, with a tree branching like the dendrites in the human brain. 
arching around the top edge were the letters BTC, and rounding the bottom were the Latin words scientia potentia est, knowledge is power. Just below the seal, a well-groomed, handsome Caucasian man in his fifties stood behind a large, modernist desk dotted with exotic souvenirs, complex Victorian-looking clocks, mechanical contraptions, elaborate sculptures hinting at biological origins, and oversized double-helix DNA strands sealed in glass. The man was dressed in pressed casual business attire. Massive translucent digital displays were arrayed above and behind him, projecting a riot of silent video imagery and digital maps of the world. The displays looked impossibly thin, and the images on them vibrant, hyper-realistic. The man motioned for his visitor to come forward. Mr. Grady, it's good to finally meet you. I've read so much about your life and work, I feel I know you. Please sit, can we get you anything? Grady still stood twenty feet away. Uh, I'm just, I'm just trying to understand what's going on. The man nodded. It can be disorienting, I know. Who, who are you again? Why am I here? My name is Graham Hedrick. I'm the director of the Federal Bureau of Technology Control. I must congratulate you, John. May I call you John? Grady nodded absently. Sure, uh, hold it. The Federal Bureau of what now? The Federal Bureau of Technology Control. We've been monitoring your work with great interest. Anti-gravity, now that is a tremendous achievement. One might say a singular achievement. Likely the most important innovation of modern times. You have every reason to be proud. A male voice, voice spoke just to Grady's right, startling him. Your water, Mr. Grady. Grady turned to see a humanoid robot standing next to him, a graceful creature with soft, rubber-coated fingers whose body was clad in a carapace of white plastic. Its face consisted only of beautiful tourmaline eyes glowing softly, looking at him expectantly. Grady glanced down to see a glass of water in its hand. Ah... Uh, he gingerly accepted the water and held it with increasing numbness. Hedrick watched him closely. You really should sit down, John. You don't look well. Grady nodded and moved toward a chair in the front of the great desk. The machine stepped aside with the grace of a puma. Be careful of the step, sir. Thanks. The moment he sat down, Grady started gulping water, glancing around nervously. Hedrick motioned for calm. Slowly. I know it can be quite a shock. We would have applied a sedative but it's important you have your full command of your faculties for this conversation. Grady finished the water and took deep breaths. Where am I? What the hell is happening? You've just been through a traumatic experience. I know, it's never pleasant. But neither is being born. And yet both are necessary to go on to greater things. And more importantly, it's now over, and you're here with us. Grady looked at his watch the one he'd lost years ago. The numbers on its dial glowed in a familiar spectrum. It showed that no significant time had elapsed since the incident in his lab. A few minutes at most. My old watch. What Time isn't important, John. This is Chicago. This is 2,000 miles from my lab, but Hedrick nodded with concern. Does that trouble you here? He gestured with his hands, and what appeared to be a holographic control panel materialized. He tapped several places, and the view outside the window changed to an uncannily real projection of New York City at night, looking uptown toward the Empire State Building. The interior office lights came on instantly to complete the illusion. Is that better? <laughs> Grady stared out the window uncomprehendingly. It was as real as reality. What the hell is this place? I told you, John. 
This is the Bureau of Technology Control, the BTC. We're the federal agency charged with monitoring promising technologies, foreign and domestic, assessing their social, political, environmental, and economic impacts with the goal of preserving social order. Preserving social order. We regulate innovation. Because, in fact, humanity is far more technologically advanced than you know. It's human nature that remains in the Dark Ages. The BTC is a safeguard against humanity's worst impulses. Grady turned in his seat to see the office doors had closed far behind him. The robot stood obediently nearby and nodded to him. Hedrick continued as he approached Grady from around the desk. Mankind was on the moon in the 1960s, John. That was half a century ago. Nuclear power, the transistor, the laser, all of that existed even back then. Do you really think the pinnacle of innovation since that time is Facebook? <laughs> in some ways, what the previous generation accomplished is far more impressive than what we do now. They designed the Saturn V rocket with slide rules that they could make it work at all. So many parts, so many points of failure. They were the great ones. We're just standing on their shoulders. Grady turned forward again. What does any of this have to do with me? Why am I here? Manipulation of gravity. Hard to imagine you did it, and with so few resources. But have you really not considered the implications of your discovery? Grady just stared at him. Come walk with me. He motioned for Grady to follow him as double doors to their left silently opened, revealing a carpeted corridor extending beyond. Where are we going? Hedrick smiled genially. Everything is fine, John. More than fine. Everyone here is talking about you. We're all excited. I'd like to show you something. What? The true course of history. I want to show you what human ingenuity has actually achieved. With one last glance back at the obsequious robot... Still nodding at him, Grady got to his feet and followed Hedrick as he placed a comforting hand on his shoulder. You should know that I've been in your position 28 years ago. I know it's not easy, but you're a scientist, John. If it's truth you're after, there are wonders ahead. So that's where I would close it. We have two very interesting authors here, and I thought we'd want to dig all of them, all out of them that we could. And so we're open to any questions or comments that anybody has. But first, I have I, I had a question for Andy. How much did you get from Zubrin? From <laughs> Zubrin? I didn't get anything. Uh, really? But what's that? Is the Zubrin stuff already obsolete? You know, the... No, Mars Direct is a, is a is a very good approach to, in my opinion, to uh, doing a manned Mars mission. I, I basically took his ideas and I made a few adjustments. Um, the main thing being that um, in Mars Direct, as he described it, there was a single ship that they go from Earth to Mars and land with, and then you fuel it up with locally generated fuel and then take off and go back to Earth. I didn't think that's possible, so I had a big ship that they go to Mars orbit with and then a little MDV to land with and an NAV to take off with. But the thing I remember about him was that you put the ships down there. They're, they're, making, they're making fuel for a year or so before you get there. Yeah, no, Mars Direct still stands up. I still it's think still it's up. like, in my opinion, is it's still the pretty much with a few adjustments is the best way to do a manned mission. <laughs> and the question I had for you, I I may have gotten this out of the book, or it may have been in a blog, but 
You have a, a philosophy of scientific history that reminds me of uh, Kuhn, I believe, where somehow the change never occurs in the mainstream. It's always on the periphery. Yeah. You know, once you get, like, Silicon Valley can do incremental change, yeah. but any, uh, nothing is going to come. Well, if you think of it like uh, the, the sort of, what is it, punctuated equilibrium, the idea that, that uh, there are these leaps in right. mutation, I sort of think of it like and that. that. I'm fascinated where that might have appeared, because I don't remember consciously saying that anywhere, but I guess I must have mumbled it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting, and it was definitely contained in, in I think, in your reading and in the book itself, this yeah. idea that uh, that you, you, you don't have to interfere with the... What you have to patrol is the... The periphery where the change is going to happen and inside is going to be incremental. Yeah, and where is the periphery? That's the other question. Yeah. But for me, what I was trying to get at in this book in particular was that, that impulse of institutions, of society at large, to resist change, when really that's the thing that's our greatest hope, our greatest answer is this constant incremental change. It's certainly what nature does, but we resist it, and when it inevitably happens, it's a bigger seismic shift that we resist it. That's and, sort of and, what I was getting at. And disruptive. And much more disruptive than if we embraced it and rolled with it constantly. And my question about the sort of dry humor that underlay it all, like primer underlays paint, was how much you get from Men in Black? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is funny. You, you, you can say Men in Black, but I, I, I tried to get a, a little more satirical in different directions, let's say. Not so much with, uh, like, for instance, with uh, Men in Black, of course, they join uh, Men in Black, and here I made the BTC a far more menacing organization than is indicated in the in the sample that I read. Uh, but there is elements, uh, there are elements of satire in it, uh, in particular uh, later on with uh, a, a group of identical people called the Morrisons. Uh, of course, that is that a social commentary on similarity of thought, or is it cloning? You know, I try to have fun with all of those things. So. Please. Well, what about, so we were talking earlier about, you mentioned Kevin Kelly, um, and, and Kelly's, like, technium idea, I don't know if you read uh, what technology wants this. I have. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, if it's not in the uh, the suggested reading at the end of this book, it's in the last one. Okay. Because uh, I, I love that book, What Technology Wants. But, but So, to me, though, what I, what I take from that is that, is that, that there's this underlying um, sort of system state of technology that suggests the next click forward somewhat. These, these, these enabling technologies enable the next step of... They make them inevitable. Yeah. yeah. So how does that fit in the peripheral concept? Well, actually, that's what I was saying. I... I well, think in the case, the yeah, in the case of the BTC, I see them doing that, and I actually don't necessarily agree with that as a concept. It's uh, the people who want to try to control or channel innovation, which I think is folly in many ways, would want to know where that next big innovation is coming from, and so they, of course, would be policing that periphery or what they perceive the periphery to be. Uh, and in a very early chapter of Influx, as you know, uh, they say they don't look for the A students; they look for the B and C students, the people that you don't expect it from, because they are not masters of conformity. But that's basically uh, Kevin, by the way, with the technium and, and, and what technology wants. What I thought was very interesting about the way he wrote that book was, again, he put it out there to get constant feedback from people. 
which I thought was, man, that's a brave way to write a book. It's like, I don't want to be criticized just once. I want to be criticized constantly. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, you have a relationship with that whole gang, right? I, mean, I, I Stuart do. Brandt. Did that all come after Demon, or were you in... It was after Demon. As a matter of fact, Stuart was really pivotal uh, in, in giving me my big start. He had me do a, a long now salt talk, which was my first talk. And what was great about that is, you know, a self-published guy, I write this kind of wacky book, and he heard about it from somebody in an online game, he told me. Is this just when you were doing your name backwards? Yeah, I was Leonard Zeros back in those days. So the, the very strange German-Czechoslovakian writer, Leonard Zeros. And, and so he gets in touch with me, and I'm like, yeah, really, Stuart Brand? No, shit. And so finally I get in touch every roundabout way, and I realized it was him. And then he had me come and do this two-hour talk, and it was a very, very big venue. And I followed, let's say the month before was Craig Ventner, who like discovered 20% of known species. I was like, somebody's made a serious fucking mistake. <laughs> I was a nervous wreck. But it worked out great. They were very supportive long now. A lot of people at Google, Microsoft, you probably find this too, is uh, that whole crowd, they like it when you adhere to science and you at least know the foundation. You can stray, you can do satire, you can do all of that. But if you know what the facts are, they really embrace you. So, and you film it too. Yeah, Google invited me to go do a talk at their campus, and I did, oh. and that was great. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, well, they're, you they're, know, it's, it's funny. I, I describe this as hard SF, and because yeah. um, I'm I'm sort of inside the field of science fiction, yeah. and hard SF is uh, you know based on science, but not always. I think what you guys are doing is more. Near future SF. I mean, I would I would regard uh, Benford and Brin and and yeah. Neil Stevenson as hard SF, but it's not stuff that's just around the corner. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's not magic. It's still science, but it's not. And the broke cycles in the past. For yeah, science. and and it does. It's not accessible right now. It it does seem that uh, that a lot of what you guys are doing is dealing with stuff that's. Well, you had an ion engine in. Uh, it's coming, man. It's almost here. No, it's there. No, it's, it's here. Those exist. <laughs> they're not as they're not as good as the one depicted in the book, but they they we've had spacecraft powered by ion engines by we I need humans. I was too busy writing a book. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> so it's it's sort of it, in a way there there's a there was a debate in SF two or three years ago about. What they call mundane SF. Uh, this was who was that? That was um, help me out, Jacob. Who started that? It was um, uh, Jeff Ryman. Jeff Ryman. He was sick of all this faster than light crap, and, <laughs> and he said, "You know, we should only write science fiction about stuff that's possible." And uh, people don't generally do that, but I think that. I think that that's where your stuff sort of... That's why you, you at one time described yourself as a, a, a sci-fi thriller writer, and at another point as a techno-thriller writer, and it seems to reside somewhere in between that. Well, I think this book in particular was the demarcation. Prior to that, I really would say that I was a high-tech thriller writer. That's how I described it. And I, I avoided saying a techno-thriller writer only because a lot of people would respond with sort of that... Oh, that's serial number fiction. You know, what type of rifle is using it? Really, right. that's not what I was focusing on. I was, I was more focusing on, on the science and the tech of it, especially the cyber aspects of it. Yeah, this book, not so much. This is about the social aspects. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Correct. Right. Come on. 
So I'll go be on the test. Well, we're done here. That's right. <laughs> I'll ask you. <laughs> I want to ask another question. You have one? Yeah. Um, I, I want to tell people I hosted uh, Daniel at a post salon at Fire Dog Lake last Saturday. Fire Dog Lake? Fire Dog Lake. Oh. It's a it's a, a blog, and I want it's it's still archived there, but in that one we covered kill decisions specifically. And um, there's a lot of things that was interesting that came out in that talk that I thought was interesting. But the one that I um, want to talk about, this one and related to uh, influx, is you have the entire. Uh, you said you said you said it as a as a metaphor in terms of yeah. the things that are. Yeah, not to sound too highfalutin. Yeah. <laughs> um, for for the change and. How the Bureau of Technology Control was you know, about control. Right. Um, in Kill Decision, there was a tremendous amount of uh, control behind the scenes, and I also see the same thing happening in Demon and Freeman, uh, uh, Freedom. What is it about that theme of behind the scenes power and control and what they're doing, you know, society wise, that interests you the most? Yeah, actually, what's great is I, I have a simple answer for that, too. Uh, to me, technology and its ability to, to centralize and focus power into invisible hands uh, both fascinates and repels me in a way. Uh, this idea that you can create a machine that can replicate itself, and of course software is that instantly. You can create a billion copies of something in software, which is, of course, demon. So that idea of, first of all, technology as the physical manifestation of the human will and advanced technology being technology that you can rapidly copy. And that combination seems to me has got to have a massive influence on our society, uh, especially the rapid innovations we're making. It's really got to lead us somewhere pretty soon. So I, I suppose that's why I'm circling around that in four books now. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen that similarity. <laughs> they are kind of different in other ways. And then the other part of that is something that's a political aspect of it, which you know, you, you, you mentioned that it like, seems like today. You mentioned something that kind of blew me away, and a lot of us have been following the Snowden, you know, revelations and the H.P. Gary. Could you tell something that you mentioned that was a lot about persona management and control that you had kind of found out in terms of the... Uh, yeah, you mean about the... the uh, stock puppets and stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, I hope you tell me, Terry, if this gets too far afield. Uh, but at, by way of example of that, Sock puppets, I can handle that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. These are these are the digital variety. They they basically the idea behind that was is an example of this idea of centralizing uh, power in fewer hands. Here you have the internet. This is a uh, a very democratic network. Everybody has access to it. But if you can mimic human behavior, simplified communications, and manage those personas, let's say hundreds of thousands of them. You know, one person, one vote gets very distorted if you can be a million people. And, and by way of examination, uh, of comparison, a lot of people are suspect of the idea of what do you need an AI to do that? And of course you don't. Because all you need is upvoting things, liking things. It's a very simplified form of communication. And if I've enabled myself to, to let's say compromise a million machines, I get a very powerful voice in that public conversation. So, that would be an example of Technology amplified. What well, is that? Uh, I haven't read Demon, but um, so it's not really an AI. It's a, no, and that's really was the key. And I think a lot of people uh, confuse that initially. It's a narrow AI. 
it's nowhere close to a generalized artificial Well, see, intelligence. I, I, I immediately, as a uh, I'm a science fiction professor, you know, as you know, at Stanford, yeah. and uh, no, wait, that's not me. When <laughs> <laughs> I immediately thought of that, it's it's one of the one of the oldest tropes in SF. Yes. I mean, of the idea of of um, Bill Gibson did it. You know, you, if you get enough computers around, eventually they achieve consciousness. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I got a hint that that was you were going a slightly different. No, direction. I think a far. I think a macro on steroids could give a serious trouble, especially if it's if it's delivered by somebody who has a social engineering background, who knows human psychology, which is why I put that in the hands of a game designer, right. somebody who knows how to pull people forward in a right. story. And then hit them on the back of the head with a two by four when they least expect it. That type of thing. Yeah. So. It's a, it's already an issue in the real world. I mean, sock puppets, yeah. right? They That's how pe- people will make fifty Wikipedia accounts, and then they'll say like, "I want to change this page this way," and people are like, "Well, we disagree." Well, let's talk about it in the discussion page. Yeah, yeah. These fifty people agree with me. Yeah. I'll vote. And it, and and that that happens all over the place. Yeah. Also, companies go out of their way to make online personas. That have enough credibility with sites like Facebook and you know other other social media sites, and then they advertise a product by having all those things, all those accounts mention it. Is it? Oh, I went and saw this movie, and it's great. You should watch it. Yeah, age accounts. That's too. And then there's like yeah, and then there's like 50 upvotes for that, yep. and so that shows up on other people's feeds, and that's exactly. that's called astroturfing. Yeah, that's right? so what it's called. So it's like a fake oh, wow. grassroots is astroturfing. So wow, I never heard of that. No, that's. I mean, there are companies that. Do this exclusively. That's their whole job, and it's a big deal. It's like, yeah. it has and that's all done through these bots that just go around and create personas and then start linking to each other. So the bots validate each other's existence. And so you just say like, well, you know, th- this guy has to be a real human because these eighty other people say he's a real <laughs> they human. Well, they're all bots. Yeah, <laughs> say these like islands of bots. So it's a lot scarier than we thought. Well, it's not like they're controlling the media. It's yeah. just like... <laughs> yeah, it's the same old stuff. Just, <laughs> just advertising. Technology. Yeah, yeah. It used to be op-ed articles in every newspaper. Now it's... Sorry. Well, it was just interesting to me because both of these books, which are very unique, are, are also the, some of the oldest ideas in science fiction. Going to Mars, you know. Or the... Uh, the conflict between science and and uh, society, you know, the secret society. And yeah, that kind yeah. Of stuff. I mean, these are these are ancient, uh, and probably precede science. Our kids getting, I prefer. Yeah. getting getting stranded and having to take care of yourself goes well, back one too. even further, right? <laughs> That'd be yeah. Mr. Defoe, I believe. <laughs> certainly, um, and going to I, I've actually read the science fiction novel myself. Uh, uh, Mars going to Mars. Knowledge, but this was 20 years ago, and it, it wasn't as um, accurate as yours, but it was basically the same kind of thing, it, only it was chemical rockets, and, and it was exuberant technology, I think. But, uh, it was so let me ask, what do you guys think of um, the singularity, that idea? <laughs> what do you mean? You wrote a book about it. <laughs> just before I go on for five hours, I thought I'd give you a couple minutes to just. You know. I think, I think, I think in real life we're pretty far away from it, and uh, <laughs> we're gonna get on great. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I know. What's funny is, oh, I have a really good friend who's, you know, uh, into doing robotics, and he's part of these robot clubs and stuff. And he goes to him and he says, like, half the people there are just like these singularity freaks. 
Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, all I want to do is make a robot that can balance itself on two wheels. And they're like, upload my consciousness. <laughs> and so, and he's like, <laughs> and so I, 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 I don't, uh, I don't take it really seriously. I don't think we're going to see it in, any, in, in our lifetimes, anything like that. So yeah. we won't be immortal on two wheels. No. <laughs> You'll have to settle for four-wheeled immortality. No, and, and also I think we have more proximate issues to be dealing with than worrying about some greater than human intelligence accelerating. I think probably the most entertaining one uh, I saw recently, what was it, Her? Where a, a, a singularity occurs, basically waves, waves by, and then it's gone, because it's like, you guys are so boring. And then it's disappeared. But uh, to me, it's just not really a major issue that we have to be dealing with. I, I do think we have to be concerned, again, about how other people use technology. Because much dumber AI agents can, again, replicate the human will. And that is a big issue when it comes to democracy, again. Well, I think that's what you uh, were dealing with in, in Demon. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, that interests me, that you don't have to have a overriding. It doesn't have to come... From up, it can come. Yes. Yeah. It can yeah. come up like that. You can destroy the whole world with the technology we have right now. Not not me. Somebody here. Not you again. Let's not always see the same hands. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Daniel. Yes. Um, I read your first novel, I mean, all those years ago, shortly before it was published. And I don't remember the exact timing, but I remember all the comparisons to Craigman. And I think yeah. I was a little bit mourning his loss at the time and was ready to jump at anyone. Oh, that wow, was, thanks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you were the first one that really did merit comparison. Oh, that's nice. Desperation. And one of the things that I thought maybe the most brilliant that he was at was always seeing just a little bit ahead. And whatever he was talking about was the thing that everyone else was going to be talking about in two years. Uh, yesterday, I got an email from St. Martin's wanting me to read their drum novel. Um, I've seen at least three since you published yeah. yours. Yeah. So I guess what I want to know is, what are you thinking about right now? What am I going to see? Did I tell you? We were joking earlier that, that, that is, this is a very common question, and I have to be very diplomatic about how I answer it because... You know, there'll be a short story on Amazon like two weeks from now if I talk about it. So I'm really into groundhogs. Groundhogs. Fascinating. I think that's the big thing. Yes. But no, I, I will say that that is in some ways problematic because if you look at the sale trajectory of, of Kill Decision, it's like it came out flat and then it kind of improved over time. And then after the TED Talk and, and things like that, bits and pieces of it coming true. Again, I like to say that was supposed to be a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. A little late, I guess, but, uh, you know, as long as the, the idea's in there, people start talking about it at some point, that'd be great. Uh, so, I don't know. I, I can't really talk about what I'm working on. I am working on something. Uh, but it will have to be... Oh, thank you. It will have to remain unknown, only because... Uh, again, we also talked about this, this idea of keeping your creative energy around a project. And I'm going to let you talk to that. Oh, sure. It, I do like basically keeping my mouth shut until the book's done. So not, not to be dismissed at all. But. Um, but he was talking about... We were talking about this earlier in the podcast... Uh, that we recorded before this. Um, one, one piece of advice I give to writers or aspiring writers is um, actually don't tell your friends your story ideas because when you do that, it satisfies your need for an audience and then you're less motivated to actually write it. 
And that's actually really bad. Like the, the biggest challenge for a writer is actually writing down the stories you come up with because that's the 90% perspiration part. And, um, yeah, it's, if it's just in your mind and you've only ever expressed it verbally, it's not a book yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's like when people say, yeah, I have a great idea and I'll give it to you and then we can split it. It's like that, that's, yeah, that's yeah. 99% of the work left now. Never do that. Well, back when I was doing web comics, I mean, I, I tried to find an artist because I'm a terrible artist. I don't know if any of you have ever seen my you're web comics. You're not terrible. You're pretty bad. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> Okay, maybe I'm three out of ten. But, uh, but anyway, my web comics, after a while, I realized, like, I hate doing the art. I'm just going to move on to narrative fiction. But um, uh, I tried to find artists, and I did. I, I would find artists, and they'd, they'd, they'd do a bit, and then they'd kind of peter out and stop. And I'm like, well, that's because... The vast majority of the work of writing a comic is it's the art. Is the art. I've had that same a, problem. It's not an even split. It is for comics, but it's hard for an artist to do stuff on spec. You know, I can write a whole twenty-two page comic book in an afternoon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy for me. <laughs> well, any arcade's interesting that way. Yeah, they have they a have split that partnership, and it's worked for a long time. Yeah. What has what? Penny, Penny arcade. arcade. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, just great. Great web comics. Penny Arcade, uh, PAX East is going yeah. on right now. That's right. In Boston. <laughs> Let's talk about writing a bit, because I know you do a lot of creative stuff. You did the comics, a couple of comics, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, and there was a fantasy or something called um, McKenzie. Bonnie McKenzie. Bonnie. Yeah, I guess that would be fantasy. Uh, well, it's about a mermaid. Right. <laughs> it could be genetic experiments. Well, uh, not experiments, but she naturally evolved. But yeah. but what was your trajectory into uh, from from that into writing a novel? Uh, well, The Martian is actually my third novel. It's just the first one that didn't suck. Uh, it's, uh, I wrote two novels before. the The second one is called Theft of Pride, and it's decidedly soft science fiction. And the writing is poor. Um, I think the plot's okay, but the but the style, it's, it's difficult to read because of the clumsy wordsmithing. And then the first one is awful and fortunately predates the Internet. So, <laughs> but, um, but, so it is actually my third book. I've always wanted to write novels. So that was the ambition. That was the goal. Driving you yeah. over it. And, yeah. and did you... Um, I know that uh, Daniel was an English major, but you weren't. You were a computer I was student. computer programming, yeah. Where was that? Uh, UC San Diego. Okay. So how did you set, did, did you take writing workshops or yeah, did you yeah, I did. in groups? And my minor was lit. I just, um, I just, I, I always wanted to be a writer, but I always wanted to have a roof over my head and eat and yeah. stuff like that. So I, I, I'm, I'm not a risk taker. I'm not a financial risk taker. I don't know how to do it. So I only, I quit my job about three weeks ago to go full time writing because of the success of The Martian. But that was, I'm not, uh, now, thank you. I am now. I am now. I guess, but uh, but yeah. So I, I, I actually, I really like programming computers. I, I like it a lot. So, but you sort of. Uh, so I've always wanted was, to be a writer. It was a uh, fairly long. It wasn't a sudden inspiration. No, no. It was my whole life. It, yeah. yeah. So what about you, Dan? Uh, by the way, I would say that that is they're both writing, just different audiences. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, I always wanted to be a novelist, always, uh, that I can remember. And I think that partly comes from huh, being a moderator in role-playing games. For ten, for ten years, I ran a campaign, and, and it, that is great training to become a novelist because 
If you come up with a crappy idea, the players will let you know immediately. <laughs> and if you come up with a pothole, they will take. They will advantage. find rules lawyers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. They'll be like, uh, so with a whole mule train. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> so you, you design games. Well, it, it's uh, role playing games. Basically, I would create the scenarios, the yeah. stories that people would and play within is, a certain rule system. Is this professionally or no? No. Although I did write a website. It's like Dungeons and Dragons. Dragons kind of it stuff. is. It is a second edition Dungeons and Dragons. So Second ed for many. Yeah. Back I did that for many. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, to hit armor class twenty. But anyway, uh, zero. Zero. Sorry, I was thinking D twenty. So, <laughs> been a while. Uh, the point being that I it got me into telling stories, and I found that my goal would be ultimately to become a novelist. But again, how do you make a living doing that? And I started getting involved, more and more involved in technology when I was in school. And very after, soon after I graduated from college, my first jobs out of college were at a publishing firm, Dot Media New York. And my first job was writing the flap copy for nonfiction books. So I, I wrote flap copy for Secrets of Successful Insurance Sales, uh, Psychic Cats, which is, I swear to God, I actually have this thing. Nonfiction. And nonfiction. All very, all very well, you know, nonfiction. Uh, but then I moved into advertising, and very soon after that, it was really technology, my ability to use computers, that it became apparent that that was going to be the way I differentiate myself. And that's, that's what I did from then on. I, I just had a knack for computers. So I don't have a computer science degree, but I would very often find myself speaking to rooms filled with computer science people. Yeah. I, think I think you're doing it now. Yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> but I think it was partly because of psychology. Because a lot of times when I would do things like code reviews, I would start with what was happening, who was involved, what were the group dynamics. And a lot of these engineers would say, why don't you start looking at the code? But it would help me really zero in on what was going on. So I combined those two things. And that's really what I did as a profession for a long time. Not, not, not just code reviews, but designing big relational data. But from your background in literature, you had this idea of being a novelist. Always. Sort of a high, Always. Yeah. A high status. Yeah. That was the goal. No, it was the goal. And, yeah. and then at some point, I just hit upon an idea that I just, I would do in my spare time. And it was sort of therapy because you have this right brain, left brain thing. It was relaxing to me, and then you could work on it until you felt it was done. So it wasn't under deadline. It was just a joy to get away to it. You had more spunk than I did because, like, when you did it, you couldn't just get immediate feedback. Oh, that's right. And so I, I posted Martian one chapter at a time on my website, so I got feedback right away, and that kind of bolstered me. People were like, oh, I love it. Where's the next chapter? And so that... Kept me going, but he had to just do like, everything as a leap of faith. Like, gay, you had to print a book. <laughs> Six years ago. Did you have an electric typewriter or just I did. a push? It was an IBM Selectric. We didn't always have zeros. Sometimes we had to use capital We had gravity and we were grateful. Stone knives and bearskins. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was your question. Wow. Uh, I preferred stone knives. Um, one of the things about Damon that got me the most, uh, and I saw actually scenes of it in, in other books, is your focusing on dealing with the 
uh, as you see, the scum of the earth that a lot of people really have a problem with. And, you know, investor bankers, spammers, you know. And uh, <laughs> having a way to get back at them, on one hand, who had evaded accountability uh, in, in a form that was non, like, can't get me, you know, it's like that way. Um, what does that impulse come from? Oh, okay, is, wow. Is, justice. <laughs> justice. Yes, yes, the id. No, no, to me, uh, the way I looked at it is in this in this book, Demon, uh, Solva was creating uh, a social system, and that social system had to encompass everyone, from the very good to the very bad, from lawful and chaotic evil to lawful and chaotic good and neutral and everything in between. So, in the same way that the internet was used by Osama bin Laden and you know, Mother Teresa, if she used it, the point is you create a system that has utility for everyone, and that is a social system. It makes it a viable social system. And then, of course, he sets loose in it predators that prey upon everyone, whether good or bad. You know, uh, there were scenes that I cut out of the book where people got stuck in loops in the demon where not function, or people who were doing something. For instance, that Grag, the, the uh, antagonist, hacker, if he didn't like somebody and they did something, he'd do something awful to them. He'd cast a data curse on them that would ruin their data uh, from then on. So it had good and evil in it as a function of it being uh, an entire world. Uh, other than that, it was just great fun writing that stuff. Uh, <laughs> it was a great excuse. And to as you move forward, the accountability of the various different powerful characters, you found ways to bring them in or bring the accountability in. Yeah, but notice what that is. It's the other people in the network. And that's really what I was getting at. The greatest check and balance in, uh, in our society is each other and, and that ability of having access to what's really going on. That is, it, it's, uh, sunshine is the greatest, in, what is it, uh, disinfectant, that type of thing. And it's not a new idea, clearly. But it seems like things are getting murkier rather than they're clear. Oh, well, yeah. It seemed like what? You don't want to rough snow it. Well, no, I'm saying Daniel didn't write snow. No, that's right. He's, bringing, uh, he's, bringing he's actually a dude. Right, exactly. But the, the forces to try and make things murky, to, to, to actually hide stuff constantly, is what I see is you know happening, is going on, and figuring out are there ways, either through technology, and I think one of the things about folks is making... Uh, looking at ways, technology, what happens when things get blocked, you know? Is there but I had to cheat. I, I got to be able to cheat in that exactly. in real life I don't want to have a, a, a katana-wielding motorcycle <laughs> kicking my door and kill me. But this idea that in this system, if you start to fuck with this system, it will come and hunt you down and kill you. That, that was its element of social control. And that's... Hopefully we're not doing that. Well, but is there any control at this point? I mean, this is the, you know... Oh, wow, we're getting serious now. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's... Oh, sorry, I, I, no, no, it's... it's yeah. it, you know what it is? It's, it's, again, it's this idea of civic society. And, and that requires involvement. And if everybody's busy in a subsistence lifestyle, nobody has time to do their civic responsibilities. And until we get that fixed, I don't think you're going to see what you're talking about. So, that's an answer. We did have a... <clears throat> You had a question or a comment? Well, kind of, but it's, it's, that was interesting enough that I sort of lost my train of thought. Let me see if I can pull it back together. Okay, cool. We'll talk amongst ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) So, you said something interesting, which was that the Pentagon contacted you after you wrote Demon. And. That what? That the Pentagon contacted you after you wrote 
yeah. demon. And what I found interesting in your other three books was that the federal government played a very backseat role in all of these problems. Yeah. And I'm wondering, actually, this goes for both of you because there's a research in NASA as well that you know has overcome the whole space shuttle debacle. <laughs> And the federal government is important in both of these. And I'm wondering how, if there was any kind of interest of the Pentagon contacting you, that made them seem like they were like on their toes. Well, uh, should we start with Andy on this? Because you mentioned that. NASA? Okay. Sure. Well, um, you know, my story necessarily included the federal government because NASA is a federal agency. So I would have had to have invented this entire genre of private space travel or something not to deal with it. The trick is... Yeah, exactly. But this is like a manned Mars mission, right? So it's not... But um, the, I don't know about Daniel or the writers. I, I just... Uh, it, you really got to be careful when you're writing about the U.S. federal government because if you say anything at all, people will think you're making some political rant instead of a story. And I personally hate reading stuff like that. I'm like, I want to be entertained, not preached at. And so I don't want to come off that way. So I always try to be really, really neutral on the government. You know, just be like, you know, and I think that's... I mean, BTC is a federal organization, though, right? Bar, so... I haven't read the book, so I'm, I'm gonna. Are they? Okay, so, uh, in, in, in chapter books, three, he said he's right. the federal no, I, I can't even remember the exact. You get to the point after a while, you're like, you're trying to remember character names. It's like, what was that? Uh, if you'll notice that you, you really don't see scenes of the president of the United States making decisions in my books. You mean Morgan Freeman? Yeah. But he's not the president? Uh, yeah, so. No, he's Nelson Mandela. Yes, it's all those things. But basically, I, what I wanted to depict, uh, at least in, in Demon and Freedom TM, and to some extent, Kill Decision, is the just widespread and, and fast-moving nature of technology and its change. So in the case of, of Demon, the government was always playing catch-up and trying to figure out what the hell was going on, and they were always there late. And yeah, that was kind of intentional. But what was interesting about it, again, if I was making any political statement about that, nobody on any side ever disagreed with that. Everybody was like, well, if you've got a big bureaucracy that's trying to deal with something, it doesn't matter if it's a huge corporation, because you notice huge corporations were in the same boat. Anything that wasn't nimble and fast uh, was basically uh, vulnerable to this fast-moving organism. And that's what it was. It was a, it was a meta or, or a, a, some sort of new type of corporate organism that had a very different agenda, and they were all trying to figure out how to deal with it. So I don't know if that's much of an answer except to say I, I don't think that really complex institutional uh, systems can deal with fast-moving change very, very adequately. So. I think you mentioned one time in... Um, in Maybe I read a blog or an interview or something but about um, how the railroad was as disruptive and as innovative as the internet. More, yeah, sure. More. Yeah. And um, and I was thinking about that. Is you think of the railroad as you know connecting? You just you know, I never thought of it as a communication system. And I was thinking that what you, um, I don't know, it's. Um, I think it's interesting. You you have a sort of 
To me, you do have a very moralistic political philosophy that underlies this stuff. That yeah, you, sort of, you sort of have to not be successful. Yeah, I think it's quite in. I like it. Oh, all right, cool. cool. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> Who's she? All right, what? I'm trying to sort of shift the gears here. What are a few movies you've enjoyed recently? <laughs> yes, I know. We're talking about books. Wow. Oh. You know, you, you always draw a blank when people ask you that. That's exactly what I was thinking. I just... <laughs> I, can't, even, I can't even think of the last... I, I, can't, I can't even name the last five movies I've seen, you know. <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking that. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. What, which I haven't one? seen Winter Soldier yet. When, I haven't seen it either. I'm too busy being a peer work. <laughs> no, uh, I did like her. I saw that recently. I thought that was interesting. You like her? Uh, I do actually, uh, but the movie. Her, I, thought was I was just saying that writers always end up talking about movies. Well, is it is it cultural like force? Is that what it is? No, is yeah, no. I, I I didn't mean to, this, to derail the conversation, but it, no, it's true because it's 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 what the novel used to be. It's Queen of the Arts. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah. So you liked her. I feel like with her that they didn't do enough with it. It never crashed. It never had. It, there was never an upgrade. There was no. You know. <laughs> see that? See that's too too real. Uh, she gets well, stuck in a loop. And well, that's why I felt like strength. as science fiction, you know, it worked as a romantic comedy, but as science fiction, I felt like they. Uh, especially, I wouldn't John, call it high science fiction yet. Like hard. Yeah, science they would have thrown in a few. Uh, uh, a few jokers in the deck, you know, like a, definitely, like an upgrade. You know? Yeah, um, yeah, but it didn't happen. And then why make it? Why is the? You know, they originally shot that movie with I think it was some British actor, uh, uh, Tilda Swinton or somebody, and they redid the whole movie. Oh, the voice of yeah, her. the voice <clears throat> because it changed completely when it was this. American, the, the the modern Marilyn Monroe instead yeah. of some Brit. You know. But also some that's going to help the marketing of the film tremendously, I would imagine, in, for an American audience to act. Yeah, but it, it. it changed. And then they find out, oh, she's not in it? <laughs> Let's have a movie with Scarlett Johansson, but you never get to look at her. <laughs> it was not pissed that way. <laughs> we'll spend all the money, but get none of the money. <laughs> we got a question from Marina. Uh, well, two things. First of all, if you want to see Scarlett Johansson in an actual science fiction film, go see Under the Skin. I want to see that. Yeah. I heard that's great. What is it? It's Under the Skin. I, I would also say, my second question, read the book, too, because the book is. <laughs> uh, but speaking of movies and knowing, of course, now what you guys both write, do you find yourself, when you're writing, influenced by movies you've seen before? Do suggestions of plot come to you, characters, or, oh, I really like this sort of thing I saw in a movie ten years ago when I wanted this into my book? I, I don't. I mean, or I don't think I do, maybe subconsciously. Yeah, I, I just, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll pull it out of the, uh, the fire here. I tend to think cinematically only because I yeah. really loved movies and shows when I was younger. Uh, and Seeing it as yeah. a movie in your mind. Yeah. And, then and so I tend to write in three acts and things like that. Maybe that's just I don't know, naturally how I do it. I tend to think not. I think it's from long exposure to these types yeah, of things. There's so many books you'll read and you'll be like, oh, gosh, all that author wants is for his book to be made in a movie. 
Yeah. And of course, every author would love their books to be made into movies because of the paycheck, I imagine. But uh, I don't know, you know, some authors seem to deliberately pander to that and their books don't last very long. I don't think either of you have that. Well, we've you know, both sold stuff to Hollywood, though. So. Yeah, we have. We both had our stuff off. We're both guilty of the thing you just described. <laughs> uh, no, uh, you know what it is. I think it's purely an impulse to try to reach a decent-sized audience with an idea. I mean, I consume popular culture, and I know what interests me, and I think I've talked about it to some degree, and I try to reach a, as broad an audience as possible with that. And of course, you know what I'm talking about is not. It isn't vampires. It isn't like that. So I'm not. There's, no there's certain demos I'm just like, I'm not going to do that. So yeah, if I start doing vampire books, you'll know I've, I've done that. <laughs> but but again, that's not to say that they're bad. Because if you have an audience, if you have millions and millions of people reading your books, there's just no faking that. That's a form of democracy right there. You can get people reading and enjoying your books. Who the hell am I to say that? Well, also, you make a lot of money. Yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> we had a question. Yeah, um, I'm assuming as you guys were growing up, you would read books. I mean, you guys didn't, but I'm assuming that that happened because now you're not writing. Do you guys find yourselves reading as much as you did, or does writing get in the way of reading? You know, it's funny. It really does for me, anyway. I mean, I don't read nearly as much. I I don't read as much as I want, and I definitely don't read as much as I should. Especially for a guy who wants to make it his profession, right? So, I mean, that's, that's, that's how you learn to get better is by reading what other people wrote. And so, yeah, no, you're right. I, I, it does get in the way for me anyway. I would totally agree with that. Uh, there's a lot of books that I'd like to read or keep up with, and I just find myself constantly doing research or something. So I've consumed vast amounts of nonfiction in really obscure <laughs> areas. Uh, and then uh, books that people have sent me that I'll really want to read. Like recently, uh, I got to read Name of the Wind. I was talking about that. Really enjoyed that. Uh, and I find also when I'm reading thrillers now, I'm always looking for the scaffolding, like where that, you know. And so it's not as innocent, like I can't just enjoy it now. Psychic um, Cat Research. Psychic Cat's book was ruined for me. <laughs> like when you say thrillers, who do you mean? Oh, God. Yeah, let me give you a good example. Uh, yeah, when they try to pin you down to specifics. I know. I like hate the, the names all flee. I'm thinking of like... People ask stuff. these questions. <laughs> no, it's a fair question. It's a fair question, but I haven't read any real hardcore thrillers in a while. Let me think. Oh, God, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I actually like this guy. He used to be a CIA agent. Barry I like his books, actually. So there, I, I look... Again, they're very mainstream, but I like his characters um, a lot. I, I got to enjoy that. But again, have I read more? No. And it's really a function of time. Um, that would be it. In the back. Um, so, uh, and we're, there's a lot of pop culture in your book. Sorry, 70 pop culture in your book. Is that your particular affinity? Or, um, <laughs> or are you just uh, old fashioned? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am old. Um, no, uh, so I, the reason I did it, uh, it, obviously The Martian takes place like in the future. Uh, the reason I did it was I wanted to constantly tie the reader back to saying this is something that's close to the present day because most of the time the narrative is spent on Mars with like super high technology equipment and you can lose track of the fact that this is supposed to be like if you if you look at what's going on on Earth at the time it looks pretty much like this now. That was the idea. Oh, this and so, is all horrible songs that come in. Yeah, well, yeah, he had yeah. he had access yeah. to this inexhaustible supply of disco and crappy seventies TV shows that his commander had brought along, and yeah, I just wanted to tie him back to 
keep them from thinking it's too far away. I'm going to tie it back to personal experiences of the reader. That's all. Um, you again? May I? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the students that had that project, Hieroglyph Project, what, what, what was it? I don't think it ever came to be. You murdered it. What is it? It was this idea that he had this idea, he went around, I think it was last year or two years ago, I think it was a black hat or something, and he was trying to push this idea that science fiction writers have this obligation oh, of, yeah. to write this positive futures, uh, not this, not this kind of cyberpunk stuff, because, um, because that's what, that's the kind of golden age writers are what inspired all these scientists, inspired innovation. And he sort of, he, uh, right, I mean, no, no, I remember that. I remember being somewhat dismayed. Who said that? Neil Stevenson. Oh, oh. He, he was trying, I guess, to make people think more positively that, that we should try to aspire to, you know, these great things. But, I don't know, kind of announcing that we all need to be doing that, it just seems, hey, dude, it's going to happen. We're going to do what we're going to do, you know, everybody. And if, if people are going through a nihilistic time, you're probably going to either get really happy books or really nihilistic books. And, and it might depend on the culture. It, it just seemed kind of, I get his point. I guess I'm sympathetic. That would be great. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. But yeah. you don't have, you also, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't like any sort of social objective in my entertainment. I just want to be entertained. Okay, well, and I, I don't like it if I can. That keeps you off the streets, away from crime. I'm just saying. I just yeah, there we go. But I, I don't. I don't like if, if any hint of being preached at or anything trying to tell me how to think. I just, you know, I'd rather watch Hulk through Wolverine through a wall than like have some moral lesson given to me. But there was a sense, I mean, I was one of those kids in the 50s that read, and there was a period, and I know what Neil Stevenson told me, when science fiction was uh, PR for space travel. And there was a lot of other things. There was robotics and social criticism and stuff, but mainly it was, let's go. You yeah. know? And it was exciting. I read plenty of yeah. Isaac Asimov yeah. and, and uh, yeah. Larry Niven and... You know, I love that stuff too. It was all it was all PR for space travel, and it had a it had a unity to it, and it had a certain innocent optimism in it. And some pretty gnarly stuff in those novels. I think people might be forgetting how nasty some of that stuff gets. But he was he was reacting, I think, to cyberpunk, right? Is that what he was reacting to? Which some of which I love. So he played a role in it. Yeah, you get a sense that he feels like that. I, I sometimes think he gives science fiction, never trust a science fiction writer when he's like, how important science fiction writers are. That <laughs> yeah. sounds like a good rule. Yeah. But I don't know, this Jules Verne, and, and he, he, I think I'm, I'm divided on it. Like, he might be right. Like He might be right that people with the vision need to get out ahead and show people where society could go and inspire them. Not sure entertainers are the people that you want to do that. In the very back. Barry, you remember this was also Hugh of Gernsback's mission statement. The what? Hugh of Gernsback had the same mission statement. Yeah. That, uh, you mean that science fiction was a way to teach uh, physics to 12-year-old boys. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah and it was. Uh, you see, that's a very achievable goal. Yeah, and it, it worked. Yeah. I know that you don't leave the airlock open. Yeah, I knew that when I was pretty <laughs> You know what, you're right. You could wind up in an alien spaceship and you'd see the airlock and you'd know what it is. You'd know what it is. Rena, are we running out of time? Um, I think we've probably taken a couple more questions if anyone has them. Otherwise, there's a little signing.
Yeah, the, these guys have to, we'll take two more questions, but they have to be intelligent and pointed. I don't want to just... And like three people put their hands yeah. down. Like oh, mine was what their favorite color I don't like is. I was teasing. I don't know that it is that good of a question, but I was curious. First, we're going to have a tribunal to judge the question. <laughs> Andy, I thought The Martian was a really just a polished, sophisticated debut novel, but you've told us it is in fact your third novel, and I'm wondering what happened between book two and book three. What did you learn along the way that helped you get to where you are? Um, well, I wrote a lot of stuff between those two. I wrote a lot of short stories. I wrote my web comics, which, I mean, had plots and storylines. And so I learned a lot about storytelling, story structure. And I think it's just, uh, just experience, just, you know, just the, the more you do something, the better you get at it. And when you launch into your court, do you have to reinvent the wheel, or does all you've learned come with you as you move forward? Well, all I've learned comes with me as I move forward, but I've, got, I've still got a lot to learn. You know, I kind of got away with a lot in The Martian by having a smart-ass do a first-person narrative. I, I didn't have to have, like, a really polished narrative voice because I could just use the main character's voice. Did you think about, I mean, you told the story in the first person, present tense, basically. Um, kind of past. It was log entries, right? So yeah. the main character is yeah. telling you what he did earlier that day. Tell, yeah. But uh, was there a, um, did you think about it, it, it? Was that the first thing that came to you to do it that way? Yeah, because the alternative would have been just, like, a guy's alone on Mars. He's not having dialogue with anybody. Right. All you'd see is, like, oh, he then he did this, then he did this. It would be almost like a, I don't know. Almost like a court document or yeah. something like, like that. Like the um, Paul Newman film, All Was Lost, Watching Him at Sea. Okay. I don't know if you saw it. I did. I did. I actually enjoyed it. But I was in the mood for kind of quietude. It was pretty, pretty goddamn quiet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we get one other question, but I want to hear it from somebody really smart like him. <laughs> <laughs> So my questions are like a couple of questions mixed together. Um, how important do you think philosophy plays a role in when you're writing a book in science fiction? And um, I mean, going forward from that, how easy is it to write? Uh, how difficult would it be to write non-fiction if you're a science fiction writer? I mean, uh, what I think is that philosophy play, plays a big role when you want to convey something, and fiction is a good way of doing that. So, how does that transition happen, or, like, how much is science and how much is philosophy that you want to convey in the moment? Take it away, Daniel. Okay. <laughs> I think you'll have two different answers here. <laughs> well, yeah, they would be. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a big thing. If I define philosophy as sort of the mores of our society and how, where we're going and why we're going there, all of those things, definitely. Uh, it's almost the reason I tell stories. Yeah. Um, and maybe it is because I'm working through some issues that fascinate me and I'm trying to make a connection with other people and see if that entertains them, those ideas. Hopefully they're interesting. But a lot of it revolves around philosophy uh, of, of how, let's say, uh, a bad situation could get better, how a good situation could get worse, all of those things. I'm kind of exploring sort of the unknown terrain out there that interests me, just going into a direction. Uh, and exploring it, and applying everything that we are bringing all that, that with me. So it's a big deal for me. It's really the reason I do it. <laughs> um, I, I, I had, like, 
Uh, so I've only got one book under my belt that I'm willing to show anybody. Um, and the one philosophy of that was just sort of a, you know, humanity can overcome obstacles really well. So I guess I don't, I don't have really deep and complex philosophies going on. Just a, a fairly simple message that actually wasn't even my intention. It, it, it just evolved out of the book. I'm like, oh, hey, this book has a message. That's nice. I didn't, I didn't mean it wasn't what I started out for, but. Listen, folks. Thanks for coming. We're starting our series again. Come see us again. I can't promise we'll always have as interesting guys as this, but we do pretty well. <laughs> <laughs>